Hello and welcome to a very special Matacast podcast, a podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. As soon as he's back, we'll be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode. Travis, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. Hey, Emmett. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited about our uh, topic today and uh, just a real honor uh, to support the podcast and to be here. Um, you guys are always knocking it out of the park and uh, I hope we uh, bring a topic here uh, a little fun. Thank you so much for those kind of words, Travis, and thank you so much for coming on. So what we're going to be talking about today is Steven Spielberg's 1975 movie, Jaws. You may have heard of it. Uh, it's a favorite movie of both of ours. Obviously, it's one of the most beloved movies of all time, but... um. Uh, I think I think I feel like Jaws is still slightly underrated in some ways just because of how successful it is. I think it's easy to dismiss because of that. And I think so some aspects of what makes it good, what makes it still good all these years later can it can be easy to overlook. And that was one of the pleasures of going back through it. And I, that's that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. It defies genre. And so some people, oh, that's just a horror movie. Some people, you know, that's just one of those those 70s uh, disaster thrillers. You know, it's so much more than that. It's, it's all of that, but it is my absolute hands-down favorite film. It, it's so enjoyable. It's so scary. The characters are so interesting. The plot uh, never fails to take you on a thrill ride. I mean, it's just it's a it's such a good movie, and it it blends that blockbuster mentality with an art house picture, in my opinion. It's this bizarre confluence of events and influences, that kind of lightning in a bottle aspect that I think you you look for in a lot of great movies. And I think even more than a lot of other great movies, Jaws is one of those movies that I think is rooted for a lot of people in childhood. Because it's, it's for a lot of people, the first semi-horror movie they see, or one of the first ones they see. And so it tends to stick in their memory for that reason. Jaws is the movie I, I've, I've seen the most times. And honestly, I don't think anything else even comes close. I don't, I, I don't even quite remember the exact first time. I remember, I remember the first time I watched Star Wars. I was, I was sitting on my grandmother's lap. I was squinting at their already ancient TV. I think it was a Zenith or some kind of, you know, Nixon era monstrosity. There were like knobs and stuff on it. Looked like it came from space. And even under those circumstances, I still could feel like the wonder and terror of that first camera crawl along the belly of the Star Destroyer. But Jaws, you know, I think I may as well have been born with Jaws. It was my father's favorite movie, so it was basically always on in our house. He would have been 14 when it came out. I can, I, I can only imagine what it was like to watch this in the theater opening summer as a teenager. It must have been a primal experience. And primal experience is still the best way to describe Jaws all these decades later. It's like there was no first time. Jaws was just there for me. I do very distinctly remember what happened the first time we showed my little brother Jaws. My father and I were full of glee, ready to add another member to our little club. And then the movie started. For the unfamiliar, Jaws begins with a skinny-dipping young woman being slowly devoured alive by an unseen force she cannot stop or escape or reason with until she is left only to scream at the top of her waterlogged lungs for God to save her. He refuses to, her severed leg drifts to the bottom of the ocean. 
At this point, my brother got up and left the room. He didn't speak to us for the rest of the night. He didn't understand why we liked it, or rather he didn't understand why we liked it the way we did. He felt we just kind of, like, pulled a prank on him. We'd sold it to him as the most fun movie of all time. Which it is. But Jaws is also a horror movie, and in our excitement to show it to him, we had forgotten to mention that. And that's what makes Jaws special. It's that, that blending you were talking about. I wasn't lying when I told my brother that Jaws was the adventure of a lifetime. But I think he was equally right to see it as the opposite of that. There's something uniquely, viscerally upsetting about Jaws, all the more so because the dread comes in such a light, rewatchable package. Jaws was the most successful movie in history. To the extent that any one film can change the course of an industry, this one did. It's one of the most documented and discussed American films of all time, up there with Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Star Wars. At this point, Jaws should be practically transparent. But that uneasy combination, where it felt like my family had watched two different versions of the same movie, keeps it feeling alive, a timeless predator lurking just beneath the surface of your vision. What was it like for you, sir, when, when Jaws first came into your life, first swam into your life? We're going to have some some eerily similar first-time <laughs> moments with Jaws. You know, Jaws like Star Wars, like Indiana Jones, like uh, Richard Donner's Superman in, in 1979, just always existed for me. So I was born in 82, and, and I, you know, I, I never saw any of those in the theater. But I have a – I'm an only child, but I have a really big family on my father's side. I have 36 first cousins. They're all at least – um, five or six years older than me. So they were showing me things that I probably should not have watched <laughs> as a child. You know, that I know, I know that's how I watched Indiana Jones. I know that's how I watched Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Did the same thing for Jaws. But like you, my father also liked the film. It, it, you know, it was a good uh, uh, adventure film. It's one of the ultimate dad movies. For that's part of its reputation. Absolutely, that we're talking about, like for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So I know that I watched it with him. Even my family, like even my cousins, all had names like Sean and Michael. So <laughs> sure. you know, they all had this curly, curly nineteen seventies hair with the buck teeth that you see in the films. So I just, I just remember looking at them and looking at the TV and thinking, this is this is like a family uh, video from the beach. Um, but I do have a very early distinctive memory of of one of the times that I first remember me actually watching the film. Myself, it was also on a Zenith TV. It was, you know, this big boxy <laughs> wood paneled uh, TV that sat in our family room, which was our sunroom. And our sunroom had a deck, and our deck overlooked our pool. Now we're talking an above ground pool that was maybe twelve feet wide, maybe four feet deep. But I would, on uh, hot summer mornings, I would do my chores. I would watch Jaws. I have no idea, was it on TV? Was it on a VHS copy that we had taped? I don't know, but I would watch it. I would then want to go swimming, and Emmett, I would be petrified. <laughs> I would be floating on uh, a float, unable to put my foot in the water. And I very distinctly remember my dad coming out with the pool skimmer, get your ass in the water. I paid for that pool. Get your ass. You know, a very 70s, 80s dad moment of get in there. There's no shark. You know, my feeble uh, six-year-old mind thinking that a 25-foot <laughs> great white was going to appear, uh, was going to somehow, was, was going to rise from four-foot depth and just tear me limb from limb. But, but you're right. That's, that's the visceral impact 
of this film that you can laugh, you can cry, you can pound your fist at the adventure, and then you can just be totally shocked by what you're seeing on screen. You know, just re-watching it this weekend multiple times in preparation, like you, I've seen it, I've probably seen it the most of any film. I had forgotten even how graphic it can be and, and how disturbing it can be. So, you know, I, I completely understand where your brother was coming from. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've only seen a couple movies at a drive-in and Jaws both times uh, were the films that I watched. And that that was kind of an interesting story um, looking up reactions from other filmmakers. Hmm. You know, you, you hear so much from other filmmakers about – the first time they saw they saw Star Wars, but so many of them, just a couple of years before, had seen Jaws. So I uh, I read a, a a quote from Kevin Smith, who you know loves Jaws. Uh, his Jaws is his favorite, and he remembers watching it in a drive-in in the back seat of his you know dad's Ford, his parents asleep in the front, and he was like, "Why you know why was I watching this film? Why were they letting me see this film?" Like we said, it, it mixes genres genres together so perfectly: horror and humor, uh, drama. It's very much, uh, I think, in the wake of those '70s Watergate politics mm-hmm. films. But it's also warm and sincere. It's got action. It's got adventure, and I think. One of the things that always strikes me about it is in its two-hour runtime, how well it captures the personality of real people in real places. Um, part of that is because they used real people. They used a real location. But you could sort of apply this small-town mentality to anywhere USA um, and get some of the same eccentric uh, type of people. You know, that this film – Never disgusts me, but I can understand how hard it is to watch at times. You've got the screams, you've got the blood, the the struggles to stay above water, to make it back to the the beach safely. Um, it always terrifies me, but I keep coming back again and again for more and more. Look at a number of movies from the seventies and eighties, and every everybody tried to duplicate this mm-hmm. film, and even the sequels to the film failed uh spectacularly uh they just they just couldn't live up to what you said lightning in a bottle they somehow caught lightning in a bottle with this picture and as we talk about the making of literal blood sweat and tears went into making this picture and it was all worth it you know it's 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 an epic it's a classic it's a masterpiece and all of that i think comes down to steven spielberg his sensibilities as a director, and his focus on sensation. Not just terror, but all of the emotions heightened. Everything in the movie is is crafted to make you feel something. The movement of the camera, the John Williams orchestra, the splash of the swimmers in the surf, the lurking eye of of the shark from below. It's raw, it's palpable. You know, that's not to say that there isn't a good story here. There absolutely is a good story. It's a wild plot. It's interesting and eccentric characters, uh, a beautiful landscape where they shot. But the makers went for broke on the visceral experience, the thrill of what's happening on screen. And I kind of think uh, that plays really well into the actual movie going experience. 
you know, like you said, I can't imagine having seen this opening weekend when it first came out because the the movie screen is like the mall of the mm-hmm. beast. It's it, it literally consumes you while you're watching this, just like the shark does its victims. It's you know, it, we 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 continue to talk the, about the power of cinema in an age where the pandemic has has hurt the movie industry and streaming services have have hit the industry hard. But there's absolutely nothing like. Lights going down, curtains going up, the screen uh, glowing white, um, just total immersion. I think that this film is just about total immersion and really Jaws to me is the perfect metaphor for both the cinematic experience, putting your butt in a seat in a theater and watching a movie, but also the art of filmmaking, the content swallows you whole. And boy, does this one continue to deliver 46 years later. Oh, that's so well said. I love that. And that's what makes it such a, I think, distinctly modern experience that it's it's yes. built around that sensation and built around that collective mass theater going experience and engaging with that head on. And I, I totally agree for all that there's so many great collaborators and voices that we're going to be touching on as we go through Jaws. This really does come down to to Steven Spielberg, because no one could have made this movie other than him, including him, even years later, as he has talked about. Like, this was very uh, a, a young artist with a lot of energy and a preposterous amount of talent uh, leaving everything on the screen. And when you talk about kind of the, the, you know, Spielberg's persona, because, like, he is the most financially successful movie maker of all time. He is a household name more than, I think, any other single director. He's won all kinds of awards and started, you know, his own uh, studio and all kinds of foundations. He still slightly has a chip on his shoulder about being the least cool man alive, which is also kind of the Spielberg thing, is that he's basically Peter Pan. He's like the, the boy who never grew up. And there's like like a generational thing where, he, you know, as a young man, he was hanging out with like Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma, you know, the, the, the coke fiend sex maniacs of the new Hollywood generation. And there's Steven Spielberg with his windowpane glasses and big goofy smile. And he's got his, his line when, in the lead up to Jaws where he was selling it to Richard Dreyfuss. And he says, I don't want to make a film. I want to make a movie. And that's kind of, I think, Steven Spielberg at, at, at his heart. There's a, a, the, a book about Jaws, a BFI book by Antonia Quirk. And in the intro, she says, not having an angle is his angle. That the, the Spielberg touch is all about being effective and undeniable. When, when people say a movie just works, like when they struggle to say what exactly they like about it and they say, ah, it just works. Like that's kind of what Spielberg, I think, captures more than anyone else. There's a, a Stanley Kaufman for, for The New Republic wrote this review of a Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie Spielberg made right after Jaws. And that very famously has like, after all this build up, but oh, the aliens are here. What's coming? What's this signal they're sending? The last 30 minutes is like pure wish fulfillment of they show up with all these big ships and there's all these like beeping lights. And it's just like the most the most glorious, like uncomplicated display of, you know, wonder you could ever imagine in a movie. And Stanley Coffin writing about it says, if Spielberg is what's called a post-literate, he has the strengths as well as the defects of post-literacy. The long last thrilling scene overpowers us because given any reasonable chance to be overpowered by it, we want to be overpowered by it. That finale doesn't bring us salvation, it brings us companionship. We are not alone. That belief seems potent in itself, and the film makes the belief believable. The way to faith seems to be through the transubstantiation of the 12-track Panavision film. And I think that perfectly sums up how Spielberg kind of backed his way into profundity using what seemed like the most kind of base or childish means. That he he took the kind of the, the stories and the, the, the pure belief of, of everything he loved as a kid and he used 
movie making tools to make that belief believable for adults to suddenly access that feeling not just i'm looking at a child character feeling that isn't that cute but i emotionally feel the same way i was a kid watching jaws watching close encounters watching these movies again and that in a way that's accessing faith and that i that i think is is what i yeah, still love about spielberg that he even though he's he's the least cool man alive even though like he he loves movies like they're his church he just he he gets that feeling across yeah, you know, he's he's up there in terms of, of director capacity, like a DeMille, like a Kubrick, like a mm-hmm. Ford, like a Lean. But, you know, just, just sitting here and thinking about what you're what you were talking about with sort of the odd man out, you know, you uh, I'll give I'll give two examples. So you think of like the ending of two thousand one or even the ending of John Ford's The Searchers, you know. Mm-hmm. Both of those images end with a person isolated. Spielberg, as you said earlier, it's all about companionship with him. It's all about relatability. You know, he's still dealing with these huge sweeping themes, these gigantic scenes in space, in Indiana Jones and adventure, you know, but he, he makes them personal somehow. He, he, I think of all of the directors, he sort of makes us see ourselves in his movies. George Lucas sort of compliments this, being both a friend of of Spielberg and and kind of adapting the childhood that they had, the 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 genre fiction of the of the fifties and sixties, you know, trying to make that for a modern audience. And I also think that that Spielberg sort of tapped into the changing dynamics uh, of the 70s and 80s Americana, um, the changing face of the family, rise of, of genre fiction and geek culture. And there was sort of this perfect symbiosis of what he and Lucas were doing to what was happening in the late 70s, early 80s with um, Dungeons and Dragons and all of these things. It just kind of seemed to culminate and and it's sort of the chicken, the egg, like, you know, did, did they did they create it or were they just tapping into it? For me, he makes it personal and that's what makes his films powerful. And, and I think there's also some uh, an interesting um, uh, comment that Peter Benchley, the author of the novel, made about him, and, and I think this goes back back to uh, the quote you read um, from um, the BFI book that you know not having an angle is Spielberg's angle, and right. th- this was an is- interesting quote that that I found Benchley said about. Spielberg. And he said, he doesn't understand reality. He understands movies. And (laughs) you can, you know, you can absolutely read that as a criticism, but you could also read this as nobody understands the purity of Jaws, the great white shark terrorizing a beach community. And so only Spielberg could adapt it because I don't have an angle. I'm just going to tell the story of the great white shark attacking the speech community. I think it is a valid, definitely a valid statement about him. I think it sums him up really well. And I think it's both his greatest weakness and greatest strength. I think there is, I think his, his, his reach sometimes exceeds his grasp when he gets into historical stuff. Because I do think he thinks movie first. Like when I think he's making movies about the 1930s and 40s, I think he's thinking first about movies set in that time versus his relationship to that time period. And that's fine, but it, you know, I think that there's something more of a disjunction there. And I think 
Still, though, I think it's ultimately strength because, you know, he's he's in the movie making business. He ought to understand movies like, you know, you wouldn't say about someone who was really, really good at making bridges. Oh, he's just an engineer. Like, well, you know, <laughs> that's his craft. Uh, Spielberg has become kind of the the exemplar of Hollywood in a lot of ways. Like he kind of he kind of stands stands in for the overall direction of the industry at certain points more than he is a, a rebel against it, which is how we. I think tend to romanticize, you know, our favorite artists and, 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 and filmmakers. But, you know, there's, there's, I think, something to be said for someone who has, has embedded himself so completely in the process while still remaining a clear creative voice. That's actually kind of remarkable. And I think it's because uh, something that uh, uh, Carl Gottlieb has said in the, the, uh, the logs for Jaws, which is something we're going to get into a lot, which is that Spielberg has the perspective of a fan. But so that's, that's our setup for Steven Spielberg, the director of Jaws. So let's get into the actual plot of Jaws. Our protagonist, Bruce the Shark, is just enjoying his habitat when some loud, annoying humans invade. They get what they deserve until the antagonist, Chief Brody, murders our hero in cold blood. Truly a tragedy for our times. We are all Bruce the Shark. But actually, our setting is Amity Island, a New England beach community. A young woman named Chrissy goes skinny dipping after a beach party. The next day, they find what's left of her body on the beach. Our protagonist, Chief Brody, investigates. The medical examiner concludes that Chrissy was killed by a shark, prompting Brody to order the beaches closed. This gets him in deep trouble, so to speak, with Mayor Vaughn. He is concerned that if word of a shark attack gets out, it could jeopardize the influx of summer tourists, who provide the town with the bulk of its income. Brody backs down, only for the shark to kill a young boy in full view of a crowded beach. The boy's mother offers a $3,000 reward for the shark. Amateur fishermen crowd the bay as the real deal. Quint offers to do the job for $10,000. Oceanologist Matt Hooper arrives on the island and confirms that Chrissy was killed by a shark. The amateur fishermen return with a dead tiger shark. Hooper insists that it's too small to be the one they're after. He and Brody later cut the body open and find no human remains. The two then investigate the bay on Hooper's boat. He discovers a great white shark tooth and a wrecked boat, but drops it in fright when a corpse suddenly bobs into sight. Mayor Vaughn keeps the beach open for the 4th of July over Brody and Hooper's protests. After an apparent shark is revealed to be boys pulling a prank, the real shark attacks elsewhere, killing one man and nearly killing Brody's son, Michael. Afterwards, Brody convinces Vaughn to pay Quint to kill the shark. Brody and Hooper join Quint on his boat, the Orca. They manage to hook the shark with a line attached to a barrel, but he pulls it under and vanishes. That night, Hooper and Quint swap scar stories, culminating in Quint revealing that he survived days of shark attacks in the water after the World War II war warship on which he was serving sank. The shark returns and rams the orca, damaging the engine. When Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, Quint destroys the phone and continues chasing the shark. He hooks it again, but destroys the engine in pursuit. Hooper descends into the water to trank the beast from within his shark-proof cage, which quickly proves to be not that. Hooper manages to swim away. Quint is not so lucky, as the shark bursts onto deck and drags him down to a watery grave. Brody escapes by shoving an oxygen tank into the shark's mouth. As the orca sinks, Brody and his rifle take refuge on the mast. He fires at the tank, exploding the shark. Brody and Hooper reunite, swimming back to the beach. Roll credits. I think that there's just a singular focus in the film. Everything is wrapped around the threat of the shark and the three men who come together to defeat it. You know, in, in the early part of the film, the two points of view are Bruce the shark. And he's called, for anyone that doesn't know, he's, he's Bruce the shark. That, that was his nickname. He was 
Steven Spielberg's lawyer uh, uh, was named Bruce. And so on set, they called him Bruce. So there's Bruce the shark and there's Chief Brody. And then we get Quint and Matt Hooper folded into the equation. And then, you know, um, as we'll talk, they, they become a trio, a companionship that, that, that sets off. The writers, the, the editor, the producers, through Spielberg's leadership, all focused on the shark. Because if you read the book, I like the book. I, I think it's a fun read. It's, it's not at all the tone that you get with the film. There are so many subplots in the book that are just all over the place. There's mafia influences. There's a, a weird um, um, sexual affair between Ellen Brody and Matt Hooper, which is I'm, – I'm no prude, but it's it's a little too tawdry even for me. Uh, but but rightly so, they they excise that because when Spielberg was reading the, the novel, it was the final tw- 120 pages. The, when they board the or- orca, when they set out to sea to hunt the beast that compelled Spielberg that he wanted – to um, make the film, and you know, let's let's give credit where credit's due. Benchley creates these characters and develops the the plot, and he he did so with the tagline: "A huge, great white menace is a resort community." But it was really the the book was really, uh, uh, in my opinion, sold as a cheap summer thriller um, to book clubs and readers' digest and everything. And so, narrowing down the plot and the development of the characters really makes this film hyper-focused on the ultimate goal, which is to to stop this great white. One of the things that really stood out to me specifically in this past year and a half of hell mm-hmm. that we've all lived through is the accurate description mm-hmm. that Jaws was the perfect – metaphor for the covid pandemic not stephen king's the stand or steven soderbergh's (laughs) can uh it was jaws it was the ineptitude of our leaders the fact that so many of our friends and neighbors and fellow citizens and elected officials would not admit admit that there was a problem that economic concerns were more important than public health and personal safety, that there were cover-ups, there was misinformation, mm-hmm. and profits were uh, put above people. And it just it it just illustrated it. So I, I I went back and looked at some of the you know early tweets from the pandemic, mm-hmm. and Larry Vaughn trended for days. <laughs> a guy, a character from a film from 1975 was trending. Uh, it's just it's just amazing to me, but it's a perfect illustration of the fact that our system just you know one one minor thing changed mm-hmm. a giant shark parks itself off of our uh coast and everything begins to fall apart and, and I think that jaws is just the perfect illustrator of of what we've lived through yes the the pandemic is real and the virus is lethal but everything that happens in jaws happened these past few months and it's it's just insane to me that that uh we didn't learn anything from one of the biggest blockbusters (laughs) ever right alas still still we just avoid crying shark until it's too late the producers of it uh, Brown and Zanuck, the, the the great producer team, they made moves on the book property before it was even released. 
Uh, that's that's how the industry works. Reading through Carl Gottlieb's uh, logs about Jaws, he compares it to shark sensing prey, appropriately enough. That yeah, you, you move on properties when there's just a hint of blood in the water, hint that they might make a, a good, might make a good movie even before it's out. And uh, one also thing that you know Gottlieb says is that you know the the industry even when it's even when you have the most talented and well-meaning well-meaning people around that there's just a lot of inertia and that everyone is restrained by what worked the last time around. Movies that change the game tend to be accidents, lightning in a bottle, as we were saying. Movies that people don't realize what it is they have on their hands until it's in front of people. Because if they had known what they had on their hands, they probably would have stopped it. Spielberg himself was a talented young director. He had made a couple of movies. He was he was uh, he was kind of being buzzed about. He had made a big name for himself in television. So David Brown and uh, Daryl Zanuck, the producers, as I mentioned, uh, brought him on board, brought him out in a boat, actually, to, to talk about it. And they were, they were largely st- signing him on the strength of his movie Duel, which was a movie he had made for television, released on television. I think it was like a movie of the week or something. Uh, but it became, yes. it became so popular and so talked about that it eventually got a theatrical release, which I think is that's a sign of a phenomenal early talent is if to, get, to get a TV movie released in theaters. I, uh, I actually rewatched Duel this weekend as, as well. I and did too, yeah. This is the film that, that brought him to attention. I was surprised, one, at some of the similarities between the shots and the story between Duel and Jaws. The The point of view in the beginning of, of Duel is the car. He pulls out of his garage as he's driving um, across the, the roads and highways uh, of LA. And then it switches um, very early on to track the car and it it that's just very similar to the opening of jaws yes. where the point of view is the shark now what's interesting is you could say well spielberg just used those same shots but benchley's novel uh started with a point of view of the shark uh so there was sort of a destiny for spielberg to, to make jaws and then there's the leanness and meanness of duel like mm-hmm. There, there is nothing extraneous in that film. It is all about the car. It is, I mean, he meets that truck very early on, and it is just a cat and mouse game for the next ninety minutes of of this truck trying to run this guy off the road or run him over or or kill anyone who gets in the way uh-huh. between him and this and this little car uh this little car and and that you know and even the way the truck driver you never really see the truck driver he remains hidden there's glimpses of his hands his boots his mouth you know that that's a lot like the shark yeah it's it's this training ground for spielberg and this this way for him to to learn how to make the kind of movie he want to makes and it's 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 just exhilarating to watch because it's yeah it's it's the simple simplest possible concept it's basically just roadrunner i mean you're just being chased around the desert and then spielberg just uses that to show off here's here's every every kind of camera angle and editing trick i've ever wanted to use and i put i'm gonna put them all to work the story and characters are paper thin like the protagonist is literally named man because of course um and so so when you get to jaws you can have that 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 same that same talent and then the the skeleton of the novel and all all the raw material is there's this jumping off point although really but kind of because of duel spielberg was at first reluctant to take on jaws because you could, could tell he was starting to sense oh i'm becoming that kind of guy he said who wants to be known as the shark and truck director 
and then came the aliens and the dinosaurs. Turns out this was Spielberg's whole thing. So, one of the things that makes Jaws so legendary is not just the film itself, but the filmmaking process. And we, yeah, we've been referencing um, uh, the Jaws log by Carl Gottlieb, but that's often treated as just kind of the Bible for talking about Jaws. Uh, the, kinda, the, the, the overview, the kind of 10,000-foot view is disastrous set. Everything that could have gone wrong went yep. wrong. Spielberg had to had to save it in editing and some unorthodox and devoted working practices, a lot like uh, George Lucas's Star Wars at the time. So that's also why we call it a lightning in a bottle. It's not just unexpected source material and young director, but that the movie barely happened at all. If you read the Jaws log, as 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 we would highly recommend, because it's just oh, yeah. it's just a good book about movie making. Like it is. even if you don't like Jaws, it's just a good book about movie making. For the first few weeks, they were on schedule. Yes, they had shot most of the la- of of the of the uh, scenes on land and in on set and stuff, but they were pretty much on schedule. But then, <laughs> disaster hit when one they started shooting on the sea, and two they realized the shark did not work. Now, let's be clear: the shark in its initial tests absolutely worked. That is something Spielberg has, himself has said. Yes, the shark worked, but they tested it in fresh water in LA. And when they put it in salt water of the Atlantic, it basically just fried the circuits and it sank to the bottom. Very early on, Zanuck and Brown, the, the legendary producers, they didn't really even think you were going to have to make a mechanical shark. They thought a shark like a dog or a horse or an elephant could be taught a few tricks <laughs> and it could perform on 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 film and you know that was a wake up call very early on to them that oh you know this is going to be a little harder than than we initially thought. Uh, there was also a looming actor strike that they were racing against the clock to 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 film this and and beat before it started. Uh, you have the attitude of the Martha's uh, Vineyard residence, which works out really well in the film in True. that they captured the, <laughs> the saltiness of the people there. But they were really sort of standoffish to these outsiders from Hollywood. The, you know, they, they were, they were, there was some guy shooting a gun into multiple houses right. while they were filming or, or where the actors were living. Uh, there were uh, multiple ordinances that sprung up <laughs> overnight. There were multiple fees, <laughs> you know, just your, 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 your traditional bureaucracy that, that sort of tried to suck the production uh, dry. You know, you, you had the ocean itself, which is very difficult to, to film on. You had the looming tourist season. You know, they were trying to get out of the way of the summer because Martha's Vineyard is a, is a summer town, is a uh-huh. summer island. And then you had the fact that the temperatures of the North Atlantic at that time are frigid. Uh, so the scenes even where they started to just film swimmers and bathers, they could only uh, shoot for so long because people were freezing to death and they had to run back on shore and get warm. And all of that made for this really difficult shoot, these uh, delays in the schedule, and this ballooning budget that just sort of got uh, out of control. It's the the, the bit about uh, Zanuck and Brown thinking they could just find a shark trainer is my favorite part of that because Gottlieb in the, in, in the Jaws logs is very like sympathetic to them he says in fairness they live in Hollywood where you know you can just yeah. order up a dolphin so 
And I just love that's like it's that's so much of the backstory of Jaws is like the make believe world of, of Hollywood yeah. crashing into the reality of trying to make this movie in New England. And just like every, all the contact points where that those two worlds broke down against each other. You have to deal with the locals who, yeah, I have um, I have family in New England and it's it's you know, it's 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 because there's. There's so little space up there. It just makes everyone so devoted to every single inch has to be exactly the way they want it. Yes. The combination of the, the actor strike. And then, you know, just the even even in the lead up, Spielberg just didn't get the prep time he wanted to to sketch out the visuals. Directors, even directors less fastidious than him, usually get a lot of time to think about. Here's OK. Here's how the scene is going to play out. Here's the camera angle I want. Here's the character whose perspective we want to make the audience feel. Here's kind of the objects I want to appear in the frame. Spielberg really didn't get a lot of prep time. So while all those other problems were coming down in his head, he was still trying to figure out the, the basic elements of mise-en-scene. They were writing and rewriting the script every day. Gottlieb talks about that and what a disaster that is, not just for the writer, but for every production team, because the script is your Bible. The script is what you're working from. The script says who needs to be aware, so who needs to drive them, and who needs to get the props in place, and who needs to have the backup version of that. And if you're changing the script itself every day, then all those changes have to be made. And something that I think is really comes through strongly in the backstory of Jaws, as in the backstory, I think, of really anyone who's worked on any major project, is small changes will inevitably become big changes, because they're going to have ripple effects, and something else is delayed. And so... Something that doesn't seem like it's going to be a big deal, if you have a hundred of those, then suddenly it's a big deal. And so then you can't keep up not only with the script, but with the budget. Uh, Daryl Zanuck has said that trying to accurately budget for Jaws was like playing golf with an exploding ball. It's just, it's just basically <laughs> impossible to win. And yeah, the, the labor issues went even beyond the actors. There was trouble dealing with the Teamsters. There was there were local boatmen who went on strike when they realized they weren't being paid as much money as the Teamsters, which I, I love that concept. <laughs> Someone had to patiently sit them and ex- sit them down and explain to them who the Teamsters are and why you really right. shouldn't be comparing yourselves to them. Even the main actors, like there's all the, the Robert Shaw, who plays Quint, is English and he, because of uh, some other movies he's worked on, he couldn't stay in the United States for very long at a time where he'd get hit with big tax problem with uh, with back taxes. So he had to like fly up to Montreal for a weekend sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus was, you know, he was a young man in his prime who was kind of a playboy and he was bad mouthing the movie at certain points. Roy Scheider, and I, I didn't uh, know this until reading the, the Jaws logs, that he had an outright breakdown at one point when they were filming out in the water and like it was just one too many small indignities in a day and he was just he was just screaming and like you know one of the horrible things about filming in those circumstances is like you can't there's no there's nowhere to go on a boat <laughs> there's nowhere to go to be by yourself for a couple hours he, you're, you're just stuck with each other and you know it's all right. it was all on Spielberg's shoulders he had to deal with every single element of it yeah and that production would just haunt him forever it wasn't the shark he was dreaming of coming to get him. It was, I'm still on a boat uh, <laughs> trying to film this damn movie. And in fact, like the moment they stopped, there, there were two reasons. The moment they stopped shooting, the last scene, he was – one, he was afraid he was going to get dumped into the water. But two, he was just done with making Jaws. Steven Spielberg jumps off of one boat into another boat the boat races to shore his luggage was packed in the back of a car he hopped in a car and he went to the airport and he got the fuck out of new england like he was just done he just couldn't take it anymore all of these things and still yet it 
it makes for a better product. And I think in Jaws's case, it's because you can kind of tell, like the anxiety yes. is palpable and actually yes. adds to the experience. And I think that is part of the personal touch where you're talking about, where you, you feel you feel Spielberg's exhaustion. Yeah, those three men, those three men on the orca at the end, like you know, we know sort of from the shooting schedule that those scenes occurred toward the end of production. So they were just wiped out and it comes through on the screen that some of these actors didn't necessarily get along and they were in these tight spaces together for so long. And it just, it made for a better picture. And there's that, that, uh, that authenticity that I think separates, you know, that generation from previous generations of Hollywood filmmakers, where there's the, the so-called invisible style of golden age Hollywood, where you're not supposed to think about the fact that you're watching a movie and you're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be very, very seamless. And then you have, I think, a lot of filmmakers of Spielberg's Spielberg's generation who wanted to have their emotions bleed into yours and wanted to have that communication. Like, you know, you take that to its logical extent is like Apocalypse Now, where that movie yeah. just becomes kind of just like a document of the people making it losing their minds. As Francis Coppola said, we, we just had too much money, we had too much equipment, and little by little we went insane. <laughs> and even even though you know even though Jaws isn't set in, set in Vietnam, it still has that same kind of feeling to it. This has this movie has become a document of our insanity making the movie, and yeah, that that nightmares you're talking about that Spielberg had it reminds me of, of James Cameron saying how when he was making his first movie, the that Piranha sequel that he was put on, a Jaws ripoff that he was he was given to direct, and that just that process was such a, a nightmare for him, and he had nightmares while making it about a robot coming to kill him, who event- which eventually became the Terminator. So it feels like for a lot of these directors, these monsters just start to stand in for the filmmaking process itself. Like this yeah. thing that just won't leave me alone, that's hunting me through my sleep, and then I have to wake up and do it again. But as you say, that's that's the crucible that forged Jaws. They were on location, mm-hmm. um, and they had everyone there. There's, there's, there's this great sincerity i guess if you say in 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 the um jaws log that even though the filmmakers and the actors sort of got on each other's nerves and and they were ready to kill each other it helped that they were all there together one living through it but two uh the craftsmen and women who were making the film uh, were also living together and in particular uh spielberg and Gottlieb, I think, live together, and then Verna Fields. They're all in this cottage together, basically. And they could meet with the actors. Uh, Spielberg could lay out the scene. Gottlieb could write the script, and Verna could, or Fields could cut the edit together so they could see what they have. And, and they knew, they knew while making it that they were making something special they just didn't know if they could get it over the line um you know to to release it and and get it into its its uh, a final product that was you know just going to rivet the audience but but it just helped that all of these folks were kind of right there together in this little cottage cutting things together writing things together piecing it together as they went and and again grueling uh making of but um a collaborative process that that makes it uh, all the better that that sense of collaboration comes through so strongly in the final product in the sense of every element supporting every other element and yeah verna fields aka mother cutter as they call her in the jaws log and i I think it's just the process of making it in in that industry, but 
uh, women editors specifically, they tend to be such badasses, like a, a Thelma Schoonmaker who edits all of Scorsese's movies. She was asked once by an interviewer, well, like, as a woman, aren't you kind of put off by editing such violent films? And Thelma Schoonmaker said, well, they're not violent until I'm done with them. So it's just like, <laughs> no, that's, that's just perfect. So That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. You know, there's there's Marsha Lucas, too, um, sure, George Lucas's first wife, who edited um, – um, I think Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, but you know she knew what what George wanted, and she literally saved that picture um, in the edit, especially the the trench run for the Death Star. It was just all over the map, and she and the co editor just sat down and said, "Let us get this." working george and they did it it's great stuff and i think you know often the editor's role is often reduced to making the movie shorter that's often how film editing gets talked about which is just really sells it short like it is it is an art absolutely form unto itself absolutely and it is it is uh, uh really a storytelling craft when you're when you're you're making yep. things come together and you're you're creating implications that maybe the director didn't even intend at the time and you're putting yourself in the audience's shoes. You know, editing is where all the raw effort is really translated into a movie. You really don't have a movie until you're done editing. And it's it was it's so great that there was no separation having her on the scene. And it makes such a huge difference because that way the filmmakers are able to see if things are working day by day. You don't get to the end of the movie and go, oh, we've made right. a turkey. Because they're able to see, oh, this <laughs> that was genius. That's not working. So when we do the next, you know, we do our next take on that scene or we do the scene that comes next. We're going to run with this element, emphasize this, de-emphasize this. It's just, if, if you can make it happen, it's like, it's like having a bunch of people really devoted to a play all working together or making an album all, all living in the same big house. You know, it's that, that sense of strong collaboration and, and real physical effort too. Real, you know, filmmaking is an act of physical labor. It's amazing. I didn't really thought about it until I was reading, um, until I was reading the Jaws logs, but just how, how steady and smooth the camera work is. And on the C-sections, even though they're being shot from a boat, which means that that's a guy using all of his all of his effort and energy to, to hold that camera up on his shoulder and keep it looking that good. So it's much as much of that guy's effort as anyone else. And then you have Verna Fields translating that into the movie. It's just everyone at the top of their game. You think about what it would take on a <clears throat> on a Atlantic swell to hold that camera steady to, to get the shot. It probably also made them uh, a little more creative uh, in the way they followed the actor or they followed the shark or whatever, you know, because they had to adapt to the environment and everything. Let's talk about Bruce the shark for a minute. Like just the audacity to try and build this 25 foot shark and make it work. Really, nothing like that had been done. Mm -mm. You could think of like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Moby Dick, but you know those effects, like you watch them today, those effects are so laughable. Um, there, there's a timelessness to Jaws, just like with Star Wars, that it was, it was real sets, real people, real effects, real boat, real ocean. It's Spielberg making the, the unreal real. It's about making something that it feels like your imagination could have come up with, which I think a yes. lot of people don't like. Like, I think there are people who just don't viscerally don't like Spielberg movies because it feels like you don't have a choice, kind of. Or it feels like he's just like yeah. he's doing it for you in a way that I think for a lot of people is kind of off-putting. Um, but I think it, it gets back to what you were saying about the the effects and how Spielberg... 
I'm sure loved growing up and going like 50s B movies, but like, you know, those look those look ridiculous now. And right. I'm sure for Spielberg, it was really like, do. I, I want to make what those movies should have been or what I wanted them to be or what yes. my imagination finished them as. And I want to make that the actual movie. And so then with Jaws, that's great because then it's like, okay, here's all the ridiculous technological challenges that are between you and that dream. And, uh, you know, for all the, all these collaborators bringing their best, but uh, um, the, that BFI book argues that Spielberg really made the, the big four decisions that kind of influenced all the headaches to come, which is that we were, we're not going to have stars. We we're going to have likable characters. We we're going to be on a real ocean and we we're going to barely see the shark. And so because of that, we weren't going to have a lot of close-ups on the stars' faces and then cut away to the shark and then edit together like that. As Gottlieb says, Spielberg wanted a lot of shots with all the principles in the frame. The boat, the actors, the shark. And that, that limits the amount of, of, of movie magic as we think about it now, or even then, that could be done. So that's, that's a lot of the kind of more technical backstory to talk about the kind of more kind of cultural and just kind of influences. I think it was clear to me even before reading the, the Jaws log by, by Gottlieb and very clear afterwards that the major influence on Jaws is the work of Alfred Hitchcock. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. You think about Hitchcock's work in terms of, of suspense and horror, in terms of music. You think specifically plot, this reminds me a lot of The Birds. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, a seaside community yep. uh, terrorized. Why is the shark doing this? Why are the birds doing what they're doing? But they're just attacking. Um, and I think that that is really powerful storytelling because – you don't need to explain it. You just need to show it and we you know, we as an audience will react to it. There's a voyeurism to the looming eye of the shark, which is in every Hitchcock picture. I mean, he he himself was a, a pretty wretched old man, but the camera, the point of view, you know, likes to watch and linger on sex and violence. And I think that there's another th another element in many of Hitchcock's films and specifically in this film that there's an every man that inextricably falls, you know, just into the plot of the movie and, you know, somehow makes it out the other end. But, you know, I think of like Cary Grant's character yes. in North by Northwest, like, you know, yep. uh, he just – it he just, just happens hap to him. He yep. happens because he raises his hand at the wrong time, and then he goes on this whirlwind adventure. I think you can see Spielberg and Hitchcock connections throughout Spielberg's career, but but really strongly with Jaws. I hadn't thought until you you uh, mentioned it that yeah, it's it's got that that northwest north by northwest wrong man angle, which is something you see in like the Coen Brothers do that also a lot. It's yes. a very good kind of basis for a noir, a twisty kind of noir plot. But the main influence of Hitchcock and Spielberg is definitely stylistic. And there's the goal that Hitchcock talked about of total cinema, in which every component is coming together to create meaning in a manner unique to movies. That you're not just filming a play or filming a novel. You're using the, the filmmaking craft to communicate to an audience. Like there's there's a bit in in Rear Window, which is, you know, all about, again, that voyeur, some guy wa watching his apartment building, assuming he knows what's going on with everyone just from his limited information. He thinks a murder has happened and he sends in his girlfriend to find evidence and he's looking through his binoculars and he sees her across the street and she's got a ring on its evidence and she, she's winking back at him. And then he moves the binoculars and he sees the bad guy notice that wink and then look up and see our hero with the binoculars. And I've, I've seen that rear window with an audience and 
like the people shudder and jump at that point and it's like there's no dialogue but the meaning has been conveyed perfectly and that's that's what hitchcock loved and that's clearly what spielberg loves too even though yeah he's not quite as motivated by the whole old man horniness that clearly motivated Hitchcock. (laughs) Spielberg's voyeurism is kind of just curious. Like he's just like looking around like, oh, I I wonder what's over there. Isn't that interesting? Like like he's looking up at space. As something else in common, uh, Hitchcock was, he was told once that cliche about how you play the audience like a violin. He was like, it's more complicated than that. You play the audience like an organ. Like all your limbs are moving at once. Just to con- yes. you know manipulate them, get them where you want them, and that's something that Spielberg I think is is even better at. I think he's better than anybody. There's that sense you get with a movie uh, like Psycho, where there is there's the there's the schlocky surface. You know, Psycho is is a, is a proto slasher story. Jaws is a is a you know a, a thriller about an animal attacking. But there are these these hidden depths, literal in Jaws' case, but these these yes. hidden depths. You know, Psycho hints at a lot of kind of stranger possible truths and interesting things going on in Jaws. Also has a lot of interesting implications, and that's that's the kind of reference point that that uh, Carl Gottlieb made, made explicit to Spielberg when he was talking about in the lead up to the movie that you know this you know you are not making another seventies disaster movie here. You are not making Airport or Poseidon Adventure. If you want this to be your launching pad, if you want this to be something worthwhile then what you have to be make is a sequel to psycho you have to make a hitchcock movie for the next generation because psycho is 15 years before jaws north by northwest rear window even older new generation new audience make them their hitchcock movie and i think spielberg ran with that as you said with um airport and mm-hmm. Poseidon image like you can see you can see the path that would have been so easy for them to go down with this with, with this movie to make it in the same vein as those big budget disaster movies of the 70s. And thank God they didn't because, again, there is a timelessness to this film that you watch those and you instantly know, oh, this is one of those 70s disaster films. Whereas Jaws, like when I watch it, I don't think about when it was made. Sure. I don't think about the cars they're driving, the <laughs> yeah, costumes. They're, I don't I think about any of that. I think about the story and the characters. I agree with that quality of kind of things dropping away because I'm pretty good at spotting product placement or not good. I just tend to notice it when product placement is is strongly in the frame. And I remember seeing just in passing, like I think it's just some movie website had taken a still of Jaws during the beach scene. And it's Ellen Brody on the right side of the frame yelling at her husband. And the left side of the frame is a big Coca-Cola balloon. And I was like, huh, I had never noticed that while watching the movie, even though it's it's right in your face. And I'd never seen it because I'm, I'm so caught up in what's happening because Steven Spielberg doesn't want me to look at it. So I didn't because right. he's that good at what he does. I know the scene you're talking about, but I didn't even know there was a Coca-Cola right? ad there either. It's, yeah. it's well done. They just wove it in. And yeah, the, yeah. I, I like the comparison <laughs> to, this, to the like stuff like Airport or Poseidon Adventure because I love – I, I, I love specifically great movies that are so close to being terrible ones. And you can, you can see yes. like the worst yes. version of it. And like that's, that's when you know the craftsmanship is at work, that they saved it from being the, the much lesser yes. thing that it could have been. But, you know, this, this was a time when the, the kind of easy categories between serious good movie and pulp cheap movie were kind of starting to to change a bit generationally in terms of the genres so jaws is also part of that i think oh absolutely like you you talked earlier about the um 1950s b movies that you know that the spielberg was watching some of them are, are are really good but most of them are forgettable and jaws 
it's following in the footsteps of a Rosemary's Baby yes. or The Exorcist. Absolutely. But the interesting thing there is that, you know, those are dealing with – those are dealing with religious themes and – Domestic abuse and, yeah, some heavy stuff. Whereas Spielberg, I think, takes the tone of those movies and says, well, I'm going to do the – like you said earlier, I'm going to do the 1950s monster movie that I really liked, but it looked really cheesy. And so I'm going to take the tone of a Rosemary's Baby and an Exorcist, and I'm going to make a really good horror movie about a shark. I think that's exactly um, and, what it is. Yep. Agreed. And you see you see, following in Jaws's footsteps, I think John Carpenter tried to emulate, to a great extent – Jaws in the Fog and The Thing. I think Stephen King's short story, The Mist, uh, which I think came out in 79 or 80, the characters in that story are these eccentric New Englanders. Of course, King puts everything in New England, basically. But, the you know, the, this community that's just trapped and isolated and dealing with something they don't understand. But the movie that I think absolutely it's is alien alien absolutely takes what jaws did and does it differently but reflects the the tone and the characters and the circumstances so well that they're they're cousins they're cousins absolutely i i really think you you hit the nail on the head with the comparison of the the tone of a film like rosemary's baby and exorcist but the the story framework of those B movies from the fifties, because there is that, that same elevation of the dread and making it feel more personal and real. But yeah, Rosemary's baby, there's just, there's, there's so much in there about, about rape and about a forced pregnancy and, and women's control over their bodies being taken away from them. The exorcist has this, this real intense uh, Christian angst to it. And worry about innocence and generations being lost. And Jaws does not aim for that that kind of resonance necessarily. Stephen King, I think, is a good reference point for for Jaws and for a lot of Steven Spielberg because that it's that that mix of of warmth and folksiness with really horrifying stuff. And I think yes, that that's, yes. in both cases, I think that is what accounts for how 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 popular they are. Is that that combination of elements, I think, I think works for for a lot of people. And that is, you know, when you talk about talk about Spielberg and you talk about Jaws, that is another thing I have to talk about is is uh, how well how well Jaws was marketed and how much that campaign contributed to its success. See it before you go swimming. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that that just it, it, there are people to this day. I mean, I do it when I walk into the water. I think, am I going to be eaten by a great white at this moment in my life? the 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 fact that you know beaches across the country saw a decline in persons uh uh vacationing um i think part of that was because people were in the theater watching the movie right. and one of the things that, that i found funny is doing some some research for this episode is you know i couldn't help myself but to go and watch like john williams conducts 
the Jaws theme or whatever. And or not just John Williams conducting, you know, symphonies around the world, you know, doing a John Williams night. And and when the Jaws themes come comes on, people start laughing. And it's not, you know, it's not because they think it's a stupid theme or, or a funny theme. It's it's because they feel that wonder of of seeing it for the first time and when that theme starts up and you know they're they're giddy about hearing it even though it's about a shark and sort of like the the novel the novel itself had a really stealthy marketing campaign to really drive up sales and um, publicity and stuff so those kind of work hand in hand that I think really just made this just an instant hint because if I remember correctly, the 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 novel was supposed to come out in like 72 or 73. It was delayed until sometime in 74. So you had this this one-two punch of the novel in one year, the film the next year. I think it's the, the advance of the advertising industry, I think, really yeah. collided with the, the movie industry at this point. To a really effective degree, uh, Gottlieb in the the Jaws log says that yeah, ever since the release, fans have been telling him that they just they didn't go swimming for a year. It was that much of a sensation? You know, it's easy to kind of in retrospect wrap Jaws into the blockbuster era because this was the start of it. But it's easy to forget that Jaws was not released and marketed into a pre-existing format. You know, when you look back at its how it was made, it kind of had to invent the, what we think of as the blockbuster structure and you know that that almost didn't happen because uh you know because of the, of the difficult process of making it jaws was uh initially set to be released uh, in christmas of 1974 so like you said it was delayed because of the production problems um and actually they they settled on the summer but that was at the time. That was the time that bad movies were dumped. Uh, right. Families were traveling. You know, school was out. People were vacationing. They were enjoying the outdoors. No one went to the. You know, we we don't understand that concept. People didn't go to the <laughs> cinema during the summer. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's absolutely. It just seems insane. Um, but what they ended up doing is they drove up the wide release of the film to about 450. You know, nowadays we talk about 4,000 <laughs> screens. You know, I think one of the, one of the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, um, uh, prequels was on, I remember a record like 4,000 screens in one day, just insane. Uh, but in 1975, they were going to put it on 450. That created the blockbuster that created the fact that people were willing to stand in line, see this time and time again. It's estimated that 67 million people, that would have been 30% of the U.S. population in that time period. The U.S. population in that time period was about 215 million. 67 million people saw this film on its initial release. That's that's insane. Absolutely insane. It's ironic for such an unpredictably made film, but it, it set in motion this smooth new infrastructure for big budget filmmaking. It's a model to follow. And it, it really introduced what became called the high concept era of studio filmmaking because Jaws, as I mentioned, had no stars. It was, it was the premise and the execution alone that could appeal to the entire family. And then you, you throw in George Lucas and Star Wars with specifically the merchandise explosion attached to that series. And I think really there's your model between all of that. You know, you, you, the, the sequelization machine hit home and 
and uh, everything goes from there. And I think it's it's easy because of that to disdain Jaws in the same way that it's easy to forget how good like Michael Jackson's Thriller or Nirvana's Nevermind is because they inspired so much crap yes. and because they inspired models we might not be fond of now for good reason. But it can, it can be wild to try to to try to make your way past all of that and remember how good the initial thing was. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about I think really what is is for me the most enduring part of Jaws, and I think the the main draw to keep people coming back and back, especially as I get older, and that is that is really the characters, especially the the central the trilogy, the the holy trinity of Jaws, so to speak. Uh, starting <laughs> with our our protagonist, played by Roy Scheider, Chief Brody. Brody is an everyman. He's a family man. Uh, I said this on Twitter. He, other than Davos Seaworth, he is my number one favorite fictional character. I see a lot of my dad in him. There's a lot to the character baked into those 1970s disaster films. You know, kind of the guy that everything hinges on. You know, he's he's the guy that's just, that's just going to pick you up and say, we're going here. We're going to hide out here. We're going to do this. You know, he has a fear of the water. He, he isolates himself in his family on an island, even though he hates the water. It's, it just seems kind of crazy, but he has a, a wholesomeness to him. His family is 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 strong. They seem to love each other. He, he seems like a good father, which is something interesting in the context of Spielberg films because so many of those movies, you think of like E.T., Close Encounters, Broken Marriages, uh, but the two uh, Spielberg horror movies, Poltergeist being <laughs> the other one, they have the most complete, well-functioning families in his universe, um, at least in this time period, you know that that sort of changed with modern. Um, he gets a little Spielberg softer. to a degree. That's true. Yeah, he gets a little softer. But no, I think that's yeah, that's a strong element people have noted in his films, and I think here and in Poltergeist, you need to have the more cohesive unit because that's what the horror happens to. That's what. Yes, that's the, absolutely. The of that's a good point. That. Whereas in other films like E.T., you have that as the starting point, so the film becomes about fixing that with the, the stand-in, yes. father figure, brother, pet. And yeah, I think uh, Spielberg described his usual protagonist as Mr. Everyday Regular Fella. Uh, you know, obviously when Tom Hanks is playing him, that's very, very easy to get across. And that is like a lot of Spielberg things, that's easy to dismiss as kind of schmaltz or as an easy shortcut. But I think in, in Brody's case, there's a real recognizability to him that I think makes him hold up. And uh, Gottlieb said about him that, yeah, Brody is a man who starts off letting other people run his life because he is unsure of who he is and where he belongs. And gradually he faces his demons and conquers them. And I think there's something interesting about, yeah, him putting himself on an island, even though he's afraid of water, because, I mean, that's kind of what Quint is doing with his ridiculous house full of shark jaws. He's surrounding himself with what he fears, because in some way you feel like that helps you not ignore it. Maybe it doesn't help you conquer it, but it helps you gets it out of your subconscious so you can you can deal with it. He's a family man, as you say. He's got his his marriage is strong, but it's obviously been tested by the move to the new place. And I think that comes across very uh realistically. It's not the not the center of scenes. It's more like a function of like little silences and little glances. You kind of know when your parents are tense, even if you don't know why. <laughs> And that's you kind of get that sense with the, with the with the Brodies. Spielberg has a lot of great scenes at dinner tables. There's the Close Encounters mashed mashed potato uh, dinner scene. There's the uh, Jurassic Park scene where Hammond is just eating his ice cream all alone. 
And there's a there's a lovely father son moment in Jaws when, as the you know as the script would say, the protagonist is at the lowest his lowest point, and uh, and Brody's just he's sitting alone at his dinner table and he's just rubbing his his hand with his eyes and he looks down and he sees his son like doing the same thing to his face like a mocking version of rubbing his hands with his eyes and that's such a beautiful like parenting moment when like you're at you're in despair and you look down you see oh here's my kid learning from me and i gotta make sure i i teach him a good model and that's how i'm gonna find happiness and then brody makes a little fake angry face and the kid makes an angry face back and then they smooch and it's just uh it's it's very heartwarming and it's like it's exactly what brody needs in that moment yeah it's it's i think it's one of the most beautiful uh moments in the film mm-hmm. um, no dialogue again you know, it just shows it cu- cu- and coupled with Coupled with Williams's, you know, uh, beautiful score as well. You know, I, th- I think about that that scene in, um, in context of, of being a father myself that, like you said, when when you've had a bad day, when you come home, you've had a bad day, you're in a foul mood, you, you know, you're just sort of done with the world. That little boy or girl is looking up to you in – in such a positive light, you know, wanting to be close to you, wanting to emulate you, you know, wanting to think you're the the, the hero or heroine of, of of their world, and and it's just it's captured so well, and and it, you know, it, it sort of pulls at my heartstrings. Be, be, it pulled at my heartstrings before, but especially as a father, it, it does now. But I wanted to jump back just real quick to your point, um, your quote from Gottlieb, that Brody is a man who starts off letting others run his life because he's unsure of who he is and where he belongs. Gradually, he faces his demons and conquers them. I made this comparison on on Twitter, but there are so many similarities between Martin Brody and Davos Seaworth. They're, they're they're both every men in sort of a worn and uh, in a sort of a a world going mad. They're they're you know they're standing at sort of this supernatural world at the center of this supernatural whirlwind that they can't control. They you know they can't even conceive of controlling it. Um, it's such an antithesis to them. Um, there's this political power struggle mm-hmm. which is. L- could literally consume them <laughs> yep. and their families uh-huh. and their pawns in this much larger story. And, you know, I think eventually, like Brody, Davos is, you know, going to become his own man of action and, and start making decisions that aren't solely about what's good for his king or whatever. It, you know, it and Brody does that in the film. And I, I think also the, the the two characters share Similar professions, similar titles. One's a cop, one's a knight. And they are what, you know, Martin explores this as, as we know in A Song of Ice and Fire. It, these are what cops and knights should be. These are the, the, these are the characters that are really trying to protect and safeguard the innocent. So I just, I just, you know, I know this is, we're talking about Jaws, but this is a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, and I wanted to make that comparison because it stood out so clearly to me as as we began to think about this episode. I was like, damn, these these two men are very similar. I think that's great, and I especially like what you said about them fulfilling what their professions are supposed to be because they both run up against cynicism about the larger structures around them, that Davos realizes that no, none of the Trueborn Knights are actually fulfilling their duties and fulfilling their oaths. And we're going to get into more. Brody has uh, conflicts with local government, and he has that great cynical line at the end of that dinner table scene 
when they're going to go cut the tiger shark open. And his wife asks if they can do that. And he looks at her and just goes, I can do whatever I want. I'm the chief of police, which is just like <laughs> right. him kind of like, like sourly making fun of what his position has kind of become in his eyes. Like, I don't even feel like I'm doing good anymore. I'm just, I'm just, a, I'm just working for the go. I'm working for the state. I'm just a, a thumb on the scales. And Davos has those feelings as well that he has to recover from and kind of embody the the, the best of their their best their professions and that that comparison to a knight i think is something that spielberg does think about you see that in indiana jones and the last crusade also definitely a movie about spielberg dealing with fatherhood issues very strongly and you see indy becoming this kind of american version of a knight he has to joust at one point and he has to get the holy grail and pass the you know the tests of worthiness and i think it's 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 spielberg is kind of interested in those archetypes recurring and i think george r, r. martin is too and you, you you find these these relatable characters that have to find their way out of these situations because it's not as maybe not as strongly a class thing. It kind of is a class thing. Brody does feel out of place in Amity the way Davos feels out of place among Stannis's other knights and lords. And there's the the, the Islanders like like the real life Martha's Vineyard folks, as you said, have this kind of this this very inward focused mentality, and they're very kind of cliquish. And there's that line on the beach when one of them says to Ellen Brody, you're not born here, that's it. You're not an Islander. And so like, like she says to him when he's trying to have a, have a New England accent and she says to him, you sound like you're from New York. And that's Davos too. Yeah. He's sufficient onions. He's never, he's never going to sound yeah. like he's from here. And I think that's, right. that's true. That's, that's, a, that's a great comparison. Of course, another character who is most certainly from here, all the way from here, <laughs> is the character of Quint. It's just Quint, something I love, by the way. No other name needed. No other, no other name required. It would only silly the purity. That's Quint. Yeah, Quint is an incredible character. Robert Shaw just, you know, he's great in the novel, but Robert Shaw takes it to a next level. Quint is clearly, clearly an Ahab. He dies like Ahab in the novel, harpooning the 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 white whale, harpooning the shark. The the rope tangles and and pulls him down to a watery grave. Uh, both men are of singular obsession. Um, you know, Ahab much more. I mean, he's after one sure, whale. Sure, sure. Uh, Quint's after every shark <laughs> that he can get his hands on. Quint names his boat the Orca, which besides humans is the only known predator of great whites. And I'm sure Quint thought, hmm, what can I name my boat to to signify that it's the apex predator of the sea? And so he names it the Orca. I think there's also an interesting comparison between Jaws the movie set on Martha's Vineyard, if you will. Amity is a stand-in for Martha's Vineyard. Sure. And Moby Dick set on or – coming from Nantucket specifically. Well documented that Nantucket produced the most uh, seamen and whalers, I think, in the history of the world. They killed millions of whales, um, brought all of this oil back that sort of fueled uh, the 1800s uh, America um, and much of the world um, as well. And uh, I think it was only by coincidence, or not by coincidence, by accident, excuse me, that they were going to originally uh, film on Nantucket, um, but a storm hit and pushed them to Martha's Vineyard. And so it, I kind of I, I kind of see the comparison of Moby Dick and Nantucket sort of being 
the old world yeah. and uh, Jaws and Martha's Vineyard sort of being the new modern tell of New Englanders conquer- conquering the sea and its monsters. I think that's that's great. And I think that works so well for Quint as a character because he's just like he's like a reminder of that for all the other characters. He's like, no matter how yes. polite you may talk and how matter how. Your, your clothes and your houses might smell nicer than mine, but where your money comes from, where this whole place comes from, is dead whales, is dead fish. That's what this whole place is. And just because your money comes from tourism now, don't pretend that, you know, I, I am what this place is. That's, that's what he emerges as into the movie. He's got that famous introduction when they're all arguing about who to kill the shark, and he just, his nails goes down the chalkboard. Like he's just emerging into the movie to remind us what's really going on here. He's a, there's a great line about it in that BFI book by Antonia Quirk where she calls him the reality instructor. That's, that's what Quintus hears. He's here to let you know, yeah, you, every, 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 you know, you worries about, you know, Brody's worries about not knowing where he is or who he is. Quint is never worried about that. Quint knows who he is. He's the working man. He's granted unimpeachable authority. He's, he's got, you know, he works for a living. He works with his hands. You're, you're, everything about him is, is as he's introduced as someone. You might not be able to trust necessarily, but he has that he has that authenticity that 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 no one else around has, and it's I like that. Yeah, this isn't Spielberg isn't isn't the kind of guy who would adapt Moby Dick. He's the kind of guy who would have a character that just makes you think of Moby Dick. Like that's that's yes. Quint stands in. I, I totally agree. He stands in for that that kind of old world and that older storytelling. Like Quint is a character out of a, a an older, longer novel, and now he's colliding with Brody, who is this character much more of this kind of uncertain every man Hitchcock kind of movie. So it's that's that's what kind of adds the adds the tension these these archetypes colliding. And then you get our third archetype, uh, uh Matt Hooper played by a Richard Dreyfus, who I think is the I think he's the least interesting in isolation of the three, but I think he works yes. really well snapped into context with the other two and kind of forcing them to define themselves and defend the decisions they've made i think one way to think about hooper i think is that he's basically spielberg's self-insert richard dreyfus kind of looks like steven spielberg at this age he's got that same goofy smile he's making sarcastic quips and pulling funny faces he's basically daffy duck like in close encounters at one point he's a straight up daffy duck voice you know he's, he's your classic boomer nerd he's always he's always channeling his old money into his new toys he's kind of embarrassed of the money in his family, but it doesn't stop him from spending it on all, all his his gadgets, just like Spielberg does. Even his boat kind of looks like a spaceship, like it's out of Close Encounters or something with all those lights. Hooper is a he's a Hooper is a technological genius who can't quite navigate the Byzantine power politics of Amity Island, and that's a lot of the comedies. His frustration dealing with these local guys who won't listen to him, and that I you know as we were saying about the the backstory of the making, that's basically what Spielberg was dealing with when he arrived in Amity. He with all his ideas and all his technology trying to deal with the locals. So that's kind of how I think about Hooper. It's like that's that's Steven Spielberg right there. Couldn't agree more. I think you hit the nail on the head, and and I, like you said, uh, he's probably the 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 least interesting in in isolation like you said um but when you put these three together um i think that there's some really fascinating things that i think we can explore here so i think first we should start with um sort of an allegorical biblical nature of how the shark tests each of these men and then let's maybe talk about how they work together and against each other so as we talked about brody is Fearful of the water, yet he, you know, it's it's almost like, and I'll use God generally here. I'm not ascribing to any specific religion, sure. but um, or belief. 
Um, but it, it's almost like God sends the shark to say, how dare you go near the water? How dare you and your family uh, how dare you put you and your family in harm's way? And and it reminds him also that that he'll never be an islander. That you know he he can't venture off of uh, an islander has to venture off the off the island every now and then. And and so uh, God tests him. God tests him. Quint unmistakable reason why a god or gods would send a shark uh, because he he. He rapes the sea. He uh, acts as the alpha predator in this alien environment. Um, you know this this human superiority um, over the other beasts of, of nature, and I think also the fact that that he gets away um, from the sinking of the Indianapolis. Like those those sharks weren't able to consume him, so I'm going to send a twenty foot. Uh, 25 foot behemoth to, to finally get you. And also I think you can read it as punishment for delivering uh, the atomic bomb, which leveled Hiroshima. And then Hooper is sent to show the shark is sent to show him that you can't study nature. You can't control nature. That's sort of, sort of a Jurassic park. Yes. You can't master the ocean's depths and, you know, all your sophistication, your learning, your technology has absolutely no power here. Uh, Mother Nature is raw and dangerous and we're going to prove uh, that you're really out of your element. And and there's there's a line in the early in the novel which which sort of illustrates this fact. The there's a a postmaster, a, a, they call her a postmistress in the the novel. It's a woman. Um but she very early in the novel rings Chief Birdie's office to say this shark is sent by God as a punishment for our sins. Uh, and then the town, the story sort of re- begins to reveal all of the town's sins, all of the characters' sins. So I think that that's just kind of a um, an interesting way the novel uses that theme of the shark as uh, a vengeful spirit, and how the 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 film adapts uh, those elements. It's uh, like they're being besieged, and then that that um, stimulus kind of brings things out of them. And yeah, that's that. It's the the horror aspect where you have the monster, but then the monster has revealed like this flip side, like you flipped over a rock to find a bunch of maggots. Like, you know, suddenly all your, everything familiar and loving to you is being taken away or tainted. And that's something that's very strong in, in horror. Again, that's why I think Spielberg has to have secure loving families in this one in Poltergeist. So then he can test them. Whereas in a lot of his other movies, the family unit is something that kind of ends up at the end. Like Last Crusade, everyone's together riding off into the sunset. Jurassic Park, you got your arm around the kids, you're flying off. And this one's like, here's the family. So then let's let's bring to the fore what, the, what they're not talking about, what they're afraid of. And the shark is, uh, yeah, stands in for all of that. So I think I think yeah you laid it out perfectly what this what this shark means for all three all three of these men it's a challenge to their worldviews and a, a kind of a, a, a bill come due for everything they've kind of indulged in and everything they thought would keep them safe and then kind of if you you put the three of these men together especially towards the the third act of the movie and get them to solve it a lot of a lot of interesting dynamics start to come out and you know a lot of a lot of uh, filmmakers and artists around this time. We're, we're getting really into Sigmund Freud and interpreting a lot of his theories and trying to get them into their stories. You see that all over Hitchcock, and I think Spielberg inherited that. And I think you can there's, – there's a very – there's just such a strong 
dynamic among these three guys that you could you could really think of them as reflecting aspects of the same personality like quint is the id and hooper is the superego and brody is this this ego trying to negotiate in between but but i think there are interesting kind of uh contrasts and similarities between all three of them it's just such a such a good dramatic scenario yeah i couldn't agree more um i think there's another song of ice and fire parallel in in the relationship between Stannis, Davos, and Melisandre. I, I don't think we should we should c- compare Quint and Hooper to Stannis and Melisandre, but just the way the characters work off of each other yes. and stand at odds against each other at times, but then also ally together against the other. You know, they, they, there's just such a interesting dynamic there um, that I think stands out to me in in the way the trio is used here in the film and the way Martin uses that trio um, in A Song of Ice and Fire. So like, let's so let's break them down that we got these three, we got Quint, Hooper and Brody. So let's break the triangle down into the pairs and how these kind of component pairs work. So like uh, Brody and Hooper are the ones that are, are first kind of start talking to each other. Like a, this is the first of the relationships we kind of see develop. They're both outlanders, non-natives uh, to Amity. They forge an immediate bond uh, when they first meet, but they've got some differences. Um, one is a family man uh, and the other um, is not. Uh, right. Is a bachelor so it's kind basically. Of the same family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then there's the status and wealth difference. One's a working man. One's a very rich New England, uh, probably old money family. If we talk about Hooper and Quint, both are obsessed with sharks. Both seem to be loners who uh, retreat to the ocean. But there's a big difference. You know, Hooper is obsessed with studying sharks. Quint is obsessed with killing them. And then again, there's the status and wealth difference. And then finally, there is Quint and Brody, both working class men. Uh, but they have a vast uh, difference in tactics, in personality. And uh, Quint, of course, is a loner. Brody is a family man. And <laughs> – Chief Brody does not want to die, and you get the sense that Quint is absolutely just waiting for the moment that he's going to draw his last breath. Suicide by shark, I think, is what we see with Quint uh, towards the end. I totally agree. Yeah, and I think, yeah, you break it down so well that the, each each of these relationships has has similarities and differences between the men, and so they all work different ways. That, that Brody and Hooper, yeah, that big handshake right away when Hooper first comes in. Brody gives him this big, like, multi-pump handshake because he's so glad to see him. Like, oh, another sane person who will listen to me. And uh, and has, has they actually have some to learn from each other. And they, they kind of, they go through that, that boat journey, that horrifying boat journey where the, where the, the one head bobs into view. And uh, they they bond around that that dinner table scene, and yeah, they they have they have little clear clear class differences that come to the fore in amusing little ways. Like when Hooper brings some wine over, and he says when Brody opens up, "Oh, should let that sit a little," and then Brody just pours it into the mug because he's had that day. And Hooper goes, "Okay, and, okay," into his glass, which already has like you know four inches of water and ice, and he's like, just like, "Whatever." Exactly. <laughs> because like for Hooper, like you know, this wine is, is is a gift. It's an elegant thing to sniff and enjoy and appreciate. Even for Brody, this is like this is this will help me eliminate the last few hours. This is I am purely practical about what this serves. And so like you know, that's that's everyone's had little moments like that where you you realize because of background you're looking at the same thing kind of differently. 
And for for Brody and Hooper, though, they don't they don't really let that get in the way of their friendship. They they that that bond st- stays together, and so and ultimately, of course, at the very end of the movie, they're they're the two that make it out. Uh, Hooper and Quint have the most yeah clearly oppositional and I think kind of interesting dynamic of the three. Uh, Gottlieb said that Hooper is supposed to represent modern science, and that Quint is all brute animal cunning. And yeah, they have, uh, they, they instantly start fighting about how to get the shark and also just about their backgrounds. The, the Quint grabs Hooper's hand and says, they got soft hands, Mr. Hooper, you've been counting money all your life. And Hooper says, I can't, I can't stand this working class hero crap. And I think he's got a point in that Quint's persona is partially a put on, like as we're going to see when we get to the, um, his big monologue scene, like the, the real Quint is actually much sadder and and more lonely than this like i'm in charge of everything kind of bluff he has to put on to get through the day so hooper is right about that but hooper has his own performances that has to be broken down through the crucible of the ocean and uh they ultimately bond over really just them dealing with creatures like the shark they bond over the scars they've taken in the process of this thing they love even though they love it differently and that's what makes them different from brody there's a yeah priceless moment when they're going back and forth Hooper and Quint with their scars all over their body and Brody's just standing there awkwardly like, oh, right, I'm from New York. <laughs> what animal would he, bite me? He, a rat? Yeah, he has to look He has to look down his pants at his appendectomy, <laughs> a- appendectomy scar. And you're like, yeah, just, that's all he's got. You know, that's all he's got. That's all he's got. Right, which is a, a perfect, like, yeah, masculine anxiety thing to provoke like that. And it's a great reversal because up until that, Hooper has been the one presented as not enough of a man in Quint's eyes. And now suddenly they have a bond over something that makes him seem real tough. And Brody is the one who feels like, oh, I'm not measuring up. I haven't led enough of a tough life. But ultimately, I think the the movie has this very, uh, I think, good perspective on Quint that it shows with this dynamic that neither he nor Hooper are really enough to defeat the shark. And both their tools fail individually. At one point, even Quint says, I guess we got to try Hooper's cage. And that doesn't work out. And it's, it's great that Brody really has to combine the two of them in order to defeat the shark. That he, yes. has to, he has to combine the, the technology and perspective of Hooper with that kind of more animal instinct of Quint ultimately to take down the shark. You get the oxygen tank. You get the rifle. It's, he's, he's like combined the two within him in a way. And then, yeah, Quint and Brody, as you say, they're united by just by not coming from, from money the way Hooper does. Um, and Quint, Quint feels to me like he could be like Brody's dad, like the way he calls him Chiefy as this little yeah. nickname. That feels like a yeah. very father thing in the way your affectionate nicknames for your son kind of makes fun of them too. Like, oh, that's your profession. You think you're so in charge, Chiefy. Yeah, throughout the film, he he uh, has one-offs with Brody where he says, don't you worry about it, Chiefy. You just ask me the next ask me the next time and I'll tell you which rope to pull or whatever. You know, sort of like he's I, – I, like you said, a dad comforting his son who's kind of embarrassed that he didn't know what to do. So, yeah, no, that's, that's a really – that's a really good um, um, uh, point there. And there's that, that, that banter aspect where it's like – and I've had this where – where something is banter, but it feels like an insult. And so you respond negatively yes. to it, even though the insult was meant. Yes. And that happens frequently in, in Jaws, where it's like when when uh, when one of Hooper's tactics doesn't work and he's complaining about it. And Quint says, well, it just proves you college boys don't have the education to admit when you're wrong. And he says it. He's kind of sad when he says it, because it's just like yeah. Hooper's just a little too tense to have a fun little, a fun little back and forth with Quint. And there's those walls kind of persist. And that, I think, again, it's that... That realism that I think you get, specifically, I think, when you let actors work with their characters and work with their dialogue, yeah. which is something that you can see very strongly coming through here. And also something that Spielberg 
kind of stopped doing when he got big enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, he's, he's not writing the scripts and it's fine to want to keep on point, but there's, there's that looseness to, to the characters in Jaws that doesn't come up again. And again, that's also something we see with, with George Lucas that in Star Wars, one of the reasons the relationships between those those main three characters feel so natural is because the actors got to work with their dialogue. And while I, I like a lot of aspects of the prequels, uh, the act most of the actors are struggling with that dialogue because it's very clearly here's yeah. George Lucas's words and you're gonna say George Lucas's words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's there's yeah. a, a refreshing aspect coming back to these these '70s films when that wasn't the case. There's perfect casting overall in this film, but there's some really perfect minor characters that pop up. You know, you've got. Polly, uh, I love Polly, the, you know, the, the secretary that works in the chief's office, Deputy Hendricks, Mr. and Mrs. Taft, they own the hotel. She's, you know, she's the woman that says, if you're not born here, you're not an islander. You, you never will be. Meadows, the newspaper man played by Carr Gottlieb, the, the writer, uh, the medical examiner, all the eccentric fisher, um, and Quince, uh, first mate and his little dog. Yes. Um, I who I always want to know more about. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, Sean, and, and Michael Brody. Um, but probably the the best minor character is Mayor Larry Vaughn. Mayor Vaughn is such a such a good secondary character that I kind of rank him up there in terms of, of the the characters that make me love Jaws. He's he's it's just such a terrific performance of a slimy uh, the slimy unscrupulous weasel always looking for his advantage. He's played by uh, Murray Hamilton, who's most best known as the the cuckold from the graduate. Mr. Robinson, you know, to 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 yeah. the famous Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> and it's that same same inadequacy that he gets across so well that he feels like he's just someone's going to point out that he's terrible at his job and he's just so tense about it all the time. He's got these great early smarmy power plays with Brody when he's forcing him to keep keep, keep the beach open. And then Hooper comes in and things get worse. So he starts like launching these just baseless and desperate attacks on Hooper's credibility. Like you're just trying to get into National Geographic to which Hooper just laughs like like that's really a thing he's supposed to be dreaming about, and like it's just so absurd. And then, uh, yeah, he's got this this that final collapse, his final scene in the hospital when it's just all the consequences are catching up to him, and he's smoking and nibbling on his fingers. It's just such a perfect villain performance of this this believably human guy who's just making these these terrible decisions. And I just I love his final line, like the the BFI book spends a while with it, where he says, "My my kids were on that on that beach too." And that sounds like he's justifying himself, but really, if you think about it, that makes it worse that your kids were yeah. on that beach too, and you yes. still kept the beach open. That you were willing to risk them, and it and it really comes as sort of the valley uh, to the peak line. You know, amity, as you know, means friendship. That little <laughs> smirk that he gets, and the the way he the cutting kind of, you know, coxie said, you know, there he is on the beach, Fourth of July. His kids are right behind him. People in just a couple minutes are going to be attacked, and and it's just it, it's a, it's an amazing performance. Um, he's such a great character, but damn, it's it's just just the, just having heard, you know having been around politicians and the way they deliver some of the <laughs> dumbest lines in the world, but just the way he does that, I'm just every time I just laugh at that line because I know what's coming. You know, it's it, it, like you said, it's it's it. This this monumental fall is coming for him. But yeah, that 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 he's just he's such a advertiser. Like I think the the movie understands yes. that that's his job is keeping up this public yep. performance. And then the camera goes below the water and it's like, here's what he's literally not showing you, and here's the yeah. truth that's gonna come out. <laughs> and then it yeah, and then it, then it, it all comes apart. 
You have all those foolish, greedy town folk who are following his lead and flinging explosives into the sea. There's a, there's a lot of great comedy that comes out of that. <laughs> the one council member that asks, is that $3,000 in cash or check? <laughs> like, I love that line every time. Right. Just waiting, just waiting to get his money. And uh, yeah. yeah, he's trying to get his money from uh, from uh, from Alex's mother, the mother of the boy who dies yeah. in the beach attack. And that uh, on the flip side of the comedy, there's the real the real tragedy of her. It's a minor performance. She's only in a couple scenes, but it's heartbreaking when she's just scanning for him on the beach. And it's just you realize everyone else is feeling relief because everyone else just found yes. that kid. Everyone else just, oh, thank God you're here, honey. And she's the one person on the beach who isn't going to have that moment. And everyone else is having it around her. And you just see his thing. You see the kid's raft just washing up on shore with the blood underneath yeah. it. And then later she slaps Brody across the face because he kept the beach open. And you see the the real kind of corruption and kind of sink on him, on Brody in that moment. What I have allowed to happen and must make up for. And that is, you know, as far as she's concerned, that he's he's responsible for her son's death. And it's that slap is powerful because so much of the violence in Jaws is implied or at a distance. And then it's not even a shark yeah. attack, but it's just a slap across the face. But it hits in that moment because there's the emotion behind it. It's just really good. Then there's Ellen Brody, who is relegated to a secondary character. She's a much more prominent character in in the novel. Um, but, you know, as we said, you know, her, her focus in the novel is that she's the outsider. She's the one that was from a high social status and is now living in this town with a working man, three kids, and develops this, um, this sexual encounter with, with Matt Hooper, who, uh, was the, the younger brother of someone that she once dated many years ago. Um, I, I think uh, the performance is, is really good. The, the actress who plays Ellen Birdie in the film is, is wonderful. I just kind of wish, you know, she was a little more. We, we got a little more with her because every scene that she's in, I, you know, I really, I really like the character. And I think, like you said earlier, the, the, the glances, the, um, the, the, the knowing look between, um, Martin and, and Ellen, you know, would would add maybe just a little more to the film um, if she was a little more prominent. Agree. The performances are very good. They feel lived in like these are people who've lived with each other. But it is noticeable. Like at the end, it's just Brody and Hooper. And it's like there's no scene at the end where there's the the reunion with her, with Ellen and the family. And it's like that's kind of noticeable in retrospect. Yeah. That she's like yeah. once 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 it's the boy's picture, it's the boy's picture. And, you know, Spielberg, I think, especially early on in his career, does not is just not hugely interested in romance or eroticism. This is something people have brought up with a lot. It goes hand in hand with a kind of adolescent boys life magazine POV of his movies. They're just not usually about sex. And that's fine. Like we we're saying about Hitchcock, there's plenty of horny directors out there if that's your thing. But Spielberg and company didn't really come up with much else for Ellen to do. I do think she does a great job in the dialogue scenes she's given. There's that great bit when both parents are exhausted. And they're just sitting on the ground in their bedroom and she just says, want to get drunk and fool around? And that very, <laughs> very ex realistic, exhausted way that, you know, parents of small kids have sex. You know, you're tired, but you know, yeah. you're still going to give it your all for each other. Or um, yes. or when uh, when Hooper comes over with the wine and he says, I'd like to talk to her husband. She says, yeah, I'd like to talk to him, too. <laughs> A very, yeah. very great like wife <laughs> yeah. to a friend thing. Like, I'm so frustrated with this man. Would you get in here and, and get something out of him, please? So then, of course, there's the final character in the movie, the one we haven't really touched on. And that's the shark. Bruce to his friends, as we've said. But yeah, as, as we've, you know, we were mentioning, the whole, the whole point of the shark is that he's, there's not a character to him, that he's, he's unanthropomorphizable. He's, he's a creature of primal imagination. 
You can't you can't see your face in him. You can't find goals in him. You can't reason with him. He is you know all the little human foibles and ticks we've been talking about. The shark is just he's just past them all. And don't you think that he becomes a better character, a a more noticeable character because of the way that Spielberg builds the suspense of his reveal? Um, you know, he's like this—he's—he's he's like this pr- presence off-screen that just you get hints every now and then, and then when he comes on screen, you're just like, "Oh shit!" Like this is real. This is this is this is even worse than I imagined. Um, you know, there—we know there was a lot more filmed, uh, but it just didn't work. The it was it was either too graphic or it the the mechanics of the shark just didn't work. So, you know, in the edit you get these slow reveals. So, let's just kind of walk through what we get of the point of view of the shark and and then we'll talk about that. It's you know, it it's it's first it's that voyeurism of watching Chrissy Watkins um from below, then grabbing her and just tossing her around. You never see anything. Then you get just like a flip of the fin when he attacks uh, Alex uh, Kittner um, on the beach or, or, or in the in the surf. Then you get, which is my most terrifying moment uh, of the shark, is when he's just barreling down like a like a steam locomotive, like an eighteen wheeler, like like the the truck from Duel. He's just barreling down for that man in the little rowboat, and he just. Bam! Knocks him and those kids off um, off their boat, and then you just Jesus Christ! You just see that mouth and that head just come up and you just pull that guy down, bite off his leg, and then Spielberg pulls back again when they go out to sea. When they go out to sea, you you don't know what's on the end of Quint's line. You don't know what's happening, and then. He jumps out of the water and then he just – I mean, I think that's the most frightening moment is when they're just watching that 25-foot great white just come to, toward the boat and then he just circles. He circles. He circles. It's just – it's just terrifying. I think it's just it's just done so remarkably well and it frightens me to this day that out there somewhere is is a beast like this right now in the water. And because each each couple second glimpse you get of him is filmed very memorably, and and and, and from yes. a certain camera angle that makes you oh it's that shot it's that shot like you were talking about it. I remember I remember every appearance of, of Bruce the shark in the same way, and there's so much lead up to it in which you're just being given uh, movements of other objects and music cues and and certain camera movements that make you sit up, and in, in each 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 of those scenes has its has its own kind of undertone. There's with uh, yeah, Chrissy in the opening, there's there's that's really the only kind of vaguely erotic part of the movie. There's strong undertones of sexual yeah. violence there. It's a proto slasher scene, really. You can see it having an influence on movies like Halloween. And there was the the bit a bit in the the BFI book that I thought was interesting that we we used to think exposed legs attracted shark attacks. Like we used to think, ladies don't go out in those you know those uh, those bikinis <laughs> or those those uh, skin showing swimsuits because because you know because that's one of our our weird things as a species like we would assume that sharks also want to have sex with the pretty ladies and I think right. Jaws gets at right. that kind of like under- inflation that we do with our minds where we turn everyone into 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 a horny person 
Absolutely. We, we, yes, it's what a, what an absolutely dumb thing to ever think because why would a shark know whether or not you're wearing well, they care. They come for the <laughs> like blood. a bikini like, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that, this opening scene kind of gets at, at that. Yes, that absolutely. Even though the, you know. the proto slash, the proto slasher, that's a really, that's a really good descriptor of the scene. You're, you're absolutely right. And then when you get to, to Alex Kittner, it's filmed from a distance, and the way it, it looks almost like an industrial accident, like the kid has fallen into something he wasn't supposed to. Yes, it it looks like a spinning fan, right? Like there was. If you some, think about the way it flipped, yeah, some you're like, what, what was that? Have made contact with him. It's like Steve Buscemi and the wood chipper at the end of Fargo. That's what kind of looks like from afar. It doesn't look like an animal. And then, yeah, you have the have the just the the, the skimming by and the circling back with the rowboat. When you're given just enough to sense it's there, and yet just beneath the surface, it's like that bit in Jurassic Park where the kids are keeping the T Rex away through the glass, and it's so yes. it's so visceral because you can imagine the touch and you can imagine how it feels. And then yeah, then when he gets then like the movie kind of starts over, like I said, when they go back out to sea, and then so it's the new the the holding back strategy again. And you know what? It, the effect of that is to force the audience to fill in the void instinctively. So we're not just watching for the shark; you kind of have to become the shark because it's not there but you know it is so you're you're kind of putting yourself immersing yourself in the scene and waiting for every bit of information and you you have to you know as as the the saying goes the what what you're forced to imagine ends up being much scarier than anything you see directly uh, on the same on the other hand when you ha- when you do have to th- see things directly there's great second unit footage of real great white sharks underwater and that oh, makes yeah. it hit real strongly like you know Richard Dreyfus might not be in the water with a real shark, but it, you get the sense that someone was, so that yes, that that makes you feel the danger. I think there's 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 another um, master of suspense in this movie, and and that's John Williams, um, co-author of you know, Jaws, really, yep. A co absolutely co-author of Jaws. Um, you know, Spielberg shot to superstardom after this film. So did John Williams mm-hmm. by themselves. A great film. A great score together, a master masterpiece. I think it's it's interesting that he worked with Bernard Herman, uh, Hitchcock's longtime collaborator and and composer. You know, there's there's another parallel to George Lucas and Star Wars here that that again the symbiosis of of the score and the film, and then the just the, the just the score overall. The the fact that what a simple uh, phrase of notes. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really mean it like what it doesn't. Uh, I was, I was listening to the turn signal on my car the other day <laughs> and I was like, this is the jaws theme. Like, it's just, it's just <laughs> note, 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 you know, yep. it's just, it's just crazy. Um, but it's, it's this perfect marriage of like terror and horror with adventure, with seafaring themes. It's, 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 it's really crazy. And then of course the, the psycho strings, um, which are, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, just, just prominent there. Yeah. I, that, that's something I love is about the scores that like, there are bits that sound like Peter Pan, like they're like the camera yes. will swoop along the orchid and the scores like do, 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 like we're having a great day on the adventure. And then, but then you get, yeah, the darker stuff and yeah, the, the, um, the, that, that rhythmic quality you were talking about where it's almost like a, a machine or a turn signal where it, do, it doesn't sound like an orchestra doing Beethoven. It's, it sounds like something repetitively getting closer to you and hunting you. And that's what psycho sounds like too. Yeah. The, the, the theme itself is, is sort of like the, the, the shark's heart beating, the, yes. the this yes. never ending hunger, it's search for food, it's eyes always moving, you know, a shark, a shark, 
if it stops moving, dies. So it's just relentless. It just keeps going, going, going. The psycho, um, the psycho theme, uh, or the psycho music sort of denotes the slash of the knife in, in that famous shower scene. Um, the cutting of the flesh, the tearing of the flesh. And, you know, I think Peter Pan is a perfect descriptor. I was trying to think, you know, mariner theme, seafaring theme, like what? And when you said Peter Pan, I was just like, that's exactly because, there's sort of a coupling of action and adventure and boyish humor and fun um, that Peter Pan denotes. And so that that's that's uh, absolutely perfect. I, I do think watching the film, I love the moments of horror. I love the adventure. I absolutely love the ending when the heroic theme slows down and and they're just kind of barely kicking to shore on that makeshift raft and you know the, there, there's a bell slightly to, lightly tolling and the, the the strings and the horns are weeping almost like a, a quince death and the sinking of the orca but but and you know our heroes are, are are tired and sore but amity is safe it's people are safe once again it, it's it's a really beautiful piece um to end the film on leaves you leaves you with a Maybe not a smile, but just kind of, kind of a, a feeling of peace at the end of a lot of yes, tension. Yes, absolutely. And it's, yeah, yeah, they're returning to the beach, which is kind of you know that that meeting point between land and sea, conscious and unconscious, and uh, that of course is is where uh, I think there there are two scenes that I think are elevated above the rest of Jaws for me. One, of course, is Quint's monologue, which we'll get get to and talk about more in a little bit. But the other one is the beach scene, the Alex Kintner attack scene. And yeah, we're talking about Psycho. This, I think the beach scene is where the comparison becomes unmistakable. This is the equivalent to the, the famous shower scene. Not, not really in like structural terms because the, I mean, the shower scene, the protagonist dies. That's what makes that in part so shocking and nothing like that happens in the beach scene of Jaws. But it's got that same expert craftsmanship and that same like unbearably precise editing where it's like moving at the pace of your thought. The shower scene is iconic, but it's, it's, still, it's still strange and fresh on rewatch because of how disorienting it is. And same with the beach scene in Jaws. The tension ratchets up unbearably as they cut from, from Brody's narrowing vision to the swimmers he's looking at, to a dog, to some cavorting couples, to a stick. Wait, where did the dog go? So when the, And when the attack hits, Spielberg and director of photography Bill Butler deliver the movie's signature shot. A dolly zoom on Brody. And by, by zooming in on him while pulling the camera back, they create this hallucinatory effect that completely captures the horror. Back to Hitchcock, he used this move in Vertigo back in the 50s to express, well, Vertigo, what it feels like when, you know, something seems to be yawning away from you even though it's staying still. After Spielberg, a great example of this technique is in Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring, when the ring wraiths first show up and Frodo senses them, and they use a dolly zoom to make the road seem like it's like expanding and rippling towards Frodo to capture the the unreality of the ring wraiths. And in Jaws, what it communicates, I think, is, is Brody's powerlessness, that he suddenly feels like he's sitting still in the middle of events that he has no control over. And it also mirrors the audience experience. That's what you feel like watching this scene, like, like uh, you're being shot into a roller coaster against your will. Yeah, absolutely. This this shot is also called a, uh, I think, a trombone shot. Uh, but you're absolutely right. What it communicates is uh, Brody's powerlessness. You know, in this moment, it, 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 watch the shot again. It separates him from his wife who is, you know, massaging his shoulders because he's so tense. Separates him from his wife. It separates him from everyone else on the beach. 
um, from those he's sworn to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, and thematically, it puts him on an island yes. himself. Yes. It, you know, everything just makes him seem alone and vulnerable and sort of like he's set adrift uh, amidst all of this chaos. Um, it's, it's, it's a really effective shot and it conveys so much um, for the character of Martin Brody as well. Yeah, it's 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 perfect. I think if uh, I had to pick a, a single shot in the movie, I think that's that's probably the one. So we've we've talked a lot about how Jaws was made and about about the plot, about the the incredible craftsmanship. But what is Jaws, you know, about? If we had to start talking about what the what the major themes and kind of the the takeaways of Jaws, what what makes it linger beyond the shock moments? And I think when you talk about the meaning of Jaws, what you're talking about first and foremost is uh, Quint's monologue about the bomb. The big speech he gives when on the orca hunting the shark and Hooper sees a tattoo that Quint has had removed and then Quint tells the whole story about the USS Indianapolis, how they delivered the Hiroshima bomb, how they were sunk and how they weren't helped for days because of how secret their mission had been. And while they waited for rescue, they were most of them hunted and killed by the sharks. So yeah, this is, like I said, there's there's the beach scene for me, and then there's this. These are the two great scenes of Jaws. This scene does not exist in the novel. We don't know why Quint uh, is like he is. Um, he just has a hatred for sharks. He, he, he you know, butchers them he butchers most sea life that he encounters um but just just i just want to give a little bit of background on the genesis of this speech so the the first couple treatments of the script were written by peter benchley himself but both but those treatments were kind of rejected by the producers and spielberg so the second treatment was written by howard sackler who's an author and a playwright um he actually goes uncredited um in the um movie he he didn't want acknowledged, uh, as Spielberg says. But he's the one who conceived of Quint's motivation. And he introduced the Indianapolis sinking to Spielberg and said, I think this is something that would motivate a character like Quint. So Carl Gottlieb is then brought in to he he had he had written for like the Smothers Brothers or the Dick Cavett Show or you know a number of different like 1970s sitcoms. Um, he's he's brought in to sort of punch up the script, to do some rewrites, to make it a little more humorous, to flesh out the characters, etc. But John Milius does sort of the final run. And if you don't know John Milius, he he's the inspiration for John Goodman's character in um, The Big Lebowski. Um, but he 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 wrote Dirty Harry, Apocalypse Now, Jeremiah Johnson, three remarkable films, and then he also directed Conan and the Barbarian and. Uh, Red Dawn. And as he likes to describe himself, he's a real uh, fucking red meat American. I mean, there's, you know, he's. Imagine, anyway. imagine if Jeff's <laughs> online know. persona was actually a real person. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Beer, guns, <laughs> red meat, Fourth of July. Yes. That, that, that is, that is John Milius. So what he does is he greatly expands the Indianapolis speech to, to like eight or 10 pages, just goes to town on it. Um, because Spielberg said, hey, can you help me out with this? But then it is Robert Shaw, a successful playwright uh, himself, who takes the speech 
and makes it what we hear on screen. And so Spielberg basically says in the 25th anniversary making of documentary, the speech in the movie is Shaw's version of Milius's version of Sackler's version. All those layers, I think, making it so rich. And, you know, after all the 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 amazing cinematography and editing of Jaws, just the camera just plunks down and watches as this man just unspools his life. And this, I think, really is the primal scene for Spielberg's whole career. This this sets up everything that obsesses him with World War II masculinity and the, the wonder and terror of technology, the lurking forces of nature and death. He comes back to this again and again in all kinds of movies that he makes. In Empire of the Sun, uh, the main character witnesses the Hiroshima nuke and thinks it's like a soul going to heaven. At the beginning of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, of course, Indy famously witnesses a nuke. And both Jim and Indy have lost their families. And I think that's ultimately what Quint is confessing here, is that he lost his family. His family was his men, his his, his fellow soldiers, and they're all gone. The sharks took them away, and he's been living a, a solitary life ever since. And just this, 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 this proud World War II inherited masculinity just kind of breaks down in front of us. And you realize that he... He feels like he he doesn't belong, even though he was introduced as the ultimate insider, the man who kind of represents this town. He feels like he doesn't belong here. And Antonio Quirk in BFI identifies this scene that really what what, what Quint is talking about here is, is the birth of the modern world, because that's what the nuke signifies for so many people, is, is, is the birth of the modern world. And really, you know, without, without that bomb, would you even have all these gadgets like Hooper? Would you even have the kind of the world that this boomer nerd exists in? And there's a, there's a great... A tragedy to that. I think something so bittersweet that Quint brought about that world, the modern world. He delivered the bomb, and that's the world where he has no place. That's the world where he feels like he can't fit. And I think that I think that resonates with a lot of people of that generation who 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 felt like they. It's almost like a Lord of the Rings thing. Like you saved the Shire, but it wasn't saved for you. Yes, yes, and and you see that especially. Um, in the generation of the depression and World War II, you know, they just didn't talk about things either. So, you know, the the fact that that he opens up at the end of the film is is really poignant. And, and I think the brilliance of the scene is is I, I sort of wonder like, did the screenwriters go in thinking, you know, do we need something just to simply explain his obsession and hatred of sharks, or can we find something that? You know, like you said, that that sort of changes the entire sphere of the earth because of 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 something that Quint was involved in, and and sort of, and so it's this, like you said much earlier in the episode, there's this deeper meaning to what we're seeing on screen, even beyond just the simple, you know, this is why I don't like sharks because they, you know, I I I spent days in the ocean fearing that I was next, watching my shipmates go down. So I, I think it's really, um, really, um, really powerful. And I think it also sort of works as a companion scene to the one we were talking about earlier with the Brodies at the table, where uh, Martin is talking to his his youngest son or or playing with his youngest son, um, doing the faces. You know, again, like like you said. Spielberg likes people at the dinner table. You know, you think of like the scene in E.T. where they're eating pizza, yes. all of that. And one one more thing that I just wanted to add that I that I thought was interesting. When Jaws 2 was being made, very early in the um, production, the, the director either quit or was fired. And Spielberg rang up Zanuck and Brown and said – and offered an idea. Like he would come back and direct it. Um, and his offer was let's tell the tale 
of the sinking of the Indianapolis. You know, let's basically do a prequel to Jaws. And Spielberg, uh, he was a he was uh, working on production on Close Encounters, but he spent a July Fourth weekend sort of toying with this idea, fleshing it out. Uh, and unfortunately, ultimately, the the studio decided they they couldn't wait until he was free, which was the next year, 1978. They had a cast, they had a crew, they had sets, they had locations, they were already filming, and the idea was a Abandoned. And, and you know, that could be another reason that he took on the Lost World, the, the Jurassic Park sequel, because he wanted to be involved. But I think ultimately we're probably better for it because I think the scene works much better with, you know, I mean, it's four, it's about four minutes long. We're talking three and a half to four minutes. And it's arguably one of the best, most iconic acted written scenes in the history of cinema. I think it just works where on works much better on a visceral level that it just exists in jaws. This is all you need and you can realize how much it informs everything else. And I think so that that scene I think really expresses uh, anxieties among the greatest generation that like you know we did what we were supposed to do, we conquered the world but then we were, you know, the sharks demonstrate where we're still we can be made mortal and powerless as anybody else. So what about the anxieties of the baby boomer generation? I think you can see that strongly with with Chief Brody. And this kind of, this like nameless fear of the city he, he alludes to but never really gets into at length. And I think it's significant that this is, this is the 1970s and Chief Brody is from New York. And this is, you know, this is the Ford to City drop dead era of New York. This is, you know... This is the, the, the cliche of the guys with the trench coats in the alleys era in New York. This is, this is the era of white flight, as it was called, in which many people left urban areas for suburbs and exurbs. And in a way, that's what the Brodies did. And Brody tells Hooper that he was, he implies that he was overwhelmed by crime in New York City, that it was just too much, and that he came out to Amity to make a difference. But the problem is, is that you can't, crime is so low in Amity that you can't even do that. There's no difference to make. So as you were saying, when we first see him, he's bored. So that's, that's kind of, I think, the, the deeper meaning with regards to his character is that, you, you know, the action is the juice, as they say in Heat. You need some kind of, a lot of us thrive on, you know, a project or an opponent or a problem of some kind. And for him, as a cop, that's violent crime. So the shark kind of embodies the violent crime he thought he left behind. He, you know, even as he hates it, he has this sick fascination for the shark that I think expresses his sick fascination for the kind of crimes he was dealing with in New York. So like you were talking about Dirty Harry, like, you know, the kind of 70s, 80s scuzzy city. Like Jaws is like, okay, what if you left that behind, but it followed you in the form of a shark? Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I th- we, we talked about this a little earlier that there this is there's a pivotal scene where Brody uh, becomes the man of action, mm-hmm. um, and it occurs. You know, he's doing a lot up to this point. You know, he's trying to close the beaches, he's trying to push back against the mayor, he's brought Hooper in, he's done all of these things, but he just can't get over the hump. Well, after the July Fourth attack, when his son has been sent into shock. He's in the hospital. Michael is is going to be fine, uh, but they're going to keep him overnight. And he's got the little one on his shoulder and he says to Ellen, want to take him home? And she responds, back to New York? And he says, no, home here. And that's the moment where Brody makes the choice that 
This is my fucking island and I'm going to defend it and its people. And he grabs Vaughn, uh, Mayor Larry Vaughn. He throws him behind a patient curtain. He pulls out a pen, pulls out that contract. He says, you're going to f- sign this. And, you know, very politically uh, expert political uh, comment here. Brody says, summer's over and you're the mayor of Shark City. And so yep. just like throws it right back in Vaughn's face that this is done, you know. You can't recover from this. Let me go kill this thing. Yep, I think you're right. That's when he stops He stops being like kind of guilty and ashamed and keeping what happened in New York in the back of his mind. And he says, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn and face it in, in the name of this place where I have, I have decided to live. It's, yeah, it's the moment he embraces being yes. here instead of like being a New Yorker who lives here. Uh, similarly, kind of a generational political themes, there is uh, the, the theme of, of capitalism. That comes up very strongly in Jaws. I remember one uh, Josh Lewis from the Sleazoids, pod- Sleazoids podcast described Jaws on Letterboxd as being a movie about how capitalism will eat your children more efficiently than any shark. And there is, there is, you know, again, Spielberg is not as like, uh, like overtly, directly radical in a way I think a lot of his contemporaries are. But I think that that's it's those that theme is very strong in Jaws. I mean, look at the opening scene, and you've got you got the hippie beach party. And then you, you got we got one of them going for a swim and just having a beautiful time and being so happy. And then they're eaten alive, which, you know, you look at the, the Woodstock generation. I think you can you can see a, a, an allegory for them there. And of course, you have you have Mayor Vaughn keeping the beaches open in spite of the shark attack. Why? Because that's how the town makes money. How are we all going to going to get along if we don't drain the tourist coffers dry? Maybe we should risk our lives against the shark like there's Mayor Vaughn says, we, you got to get in. One family gets up and walks into the sea like they're being sacrificed. Because, I mean, what else are their options? Uh, you know, I think uh, Quint definitely pokes this wound when he, in his introductory scene when he says, you got to hire me, otherwise you'll all be on welfare the whole winter. Because that's, you know, that's that's the American nightmare for a town like this. We're all going to have to go on welfare. We have we have failed at our capitalist enterprises. That that fits the setting so well. Gottlieb describes Martha's Vineyard as like the last inch of America where you can't find a McDonald's. This is a place you come from. This is the antithesis of capitalist Hollywood. But, uh, you know, as we're seeing in the movie... Even this place has its runs on its own market logic. The nostalgia of tourism is is what covers up the blood. Yeah, it's a it's a house of cards. Yep. Um, the whole system, Amity itself, the whole system. Like like we were talking earlier with with COVID. You know, yeah. one small thing right. happens and yeah. everything topples down. Um, and you know, the 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 shark and capitalism. Perfect metaphors for each other, that they are just a machine that consumes, 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 but also not just products, but consumes its people um, and just spits you out and, and moves on to the next thing. And um, it's, 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 it's really powerful stuff uh, when you think of it in, in those terms. Yeah I, yeah, I agree. And it's, it's, you know, it's not insightful in the same way that star wars isn't actually insightful about nazis you know it's just it's right it's just, it's just very very cleverly using that framework and in, in and i think a very effective right. way when we talk about the the ancient dramatic conflicts the kind of struggles that aristotle and those guys would talk about obviously man versus nature is the strong one that comes up with jaws it's an ancient theme you, you know we talked about moby dick there's Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. Um, even that book sharing some similarities where you don't see the the, the fish for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we talked about we talked about Ridley Scott's Alien, another horror story where the monster appears off screen for a long time. There, there's a there's an unrelenting turn of the world that 
it doesn't give a crap about our fears or desires. It's just going to do what it's going to do because it's always done this. Um, and we're just a blip on its radar. Yeah, that, that sense of, of ancient time and, and being small in the face of it and being um, being brought back to the, to the, the horror of the food chain and being reminded of, of yeah. what a blessing it is to, to escape it. And having to, to access something, a part of your brain that you might not have consciously remembered. And that's something kind of Brody has to, Brody has to go through. I think all, all these themes, I think, have strong grounding and kind of elevate jo- Jaws. And it's kind of B-movie poetry. But Jaws is, like, you know, Jaws is a difficult movie to describe. For all that we've, we've spent a long time talking about it, it can be difficult <laughs> to access why exactly it lingers in the memory and, and none of the explanations I think on their own quite, quite fully add up. And I, I think there was a, Andrew Tracy wrote in reverse shot and he was writing about Jaws and he was writing about exactly that. Like he said, Jaws is clearly a myth, but a myth of, of what exactly? And he, he wrote that <laughs> Jaws's triumph is precisely that it means nothing, that its effect alone is the sum total of its being and its reason for being sensation shorn of anything outside our own willingness to experience it. And I think there is there is something to that where Jaws, almost post criticism, where it's it, the the BFI book describes it as having this property of seeming discovered rather than created, like Spielberg just like stumbled upon it and is giving it to us. It, it, they call it it's the definitive articulation of a myth. It feels like older than our themes. Like it feels like something we should be getting the themes from somehow. Yeah, you say this in your blog really well. You you describe it as being um, um, hewn that it it wasn't made. You know, it's it's almost like it, it came from Vulcan's forge. Right, right. That that the, the it's like almost like the elves of Rivendell restoring Isildur. You're like you, you don't know how they did it, but here's here's this ancient blade back. You know, it's something special. It's 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 stealing fire from from Mount Olympus. Yes. As we said earlier, it's capturing lightning in a bottle, and. Just as you said in that in that quote about uh, uh, sensation, sensation again, Spielberg went for sensation and he delivered. And you know, it's often said about Spielberg, often like kind of as a backhanded compliment, like that Peter Bensley quote about he doesn't know about reality; he only knows about movies. It's often said about him that he makes movies about movies. That you know, you look at Close Encounters and Jurassic Park or the Indiana Jones series, and they're all focused on like dazzling displays of light that everyone is just looking at, and they're they're captivating and compelling us. And that's Spielberg kind of showing you what he feels about movies. So asking what these displays mean in a literary sense might kind of be a category error. Like the dazzle itself is is what they're about, and that is the the view from nowhere. As I was saying, that a lot of people hate about modern blockbusters. But Jaws itself, I think, if I can recommend it to people who, ha- who might not have seen it, uh, it's, it, is, it is not guilty of the many sins of its progeny. It is authentic in its making and impact. Gottlieb mentions in passing the, the nitpicking that passes for criticism, and that has unfortunately only gotten worse in movie culture since. And the BFI book also points out that it's, that it's a profoundly Philistine tradition that sees art as only the handmaiden to life. And I think, I think Spielberg Spielberg's movies really get at movies just as movies and as experiences in themselves uh, Gottlieb says the producers rejected one old school director because he kept referring to the shark as the whale because he, he was clearly kind of thinking of Moby Dick and it's easy to confuse the two and we've talked about both but as symbols they do work differently the white whale is so tragic because it represents all the majesty that humanity feels the need to destroy if we could only coexist with the beast if we could only not kill us if we could only learn to not kill it there's a sense of real loss 
With Bruce the shark, you're not losing anything. The shark stands in, like you were saying, for for movies themselves or for Hollywood itself. It's empty. It's only there to eat you. But damn if it's not effective. You mentioned Alien earlier, and I agree. I think Alien is the only true heir to Jaws. And there's the line I love from Alien from Android from Ash the Android when he's he's describing why the company has expended people's lives to get their hands on the alien. He says, you still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? The perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. I admire its purity. A survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. And I love that because it, it describes the, the alien and alien. It describes the shark and jaws, but it also describes how those movies themselves work. They are perfect organisms whose structural perfection is matched only by their hostility. They are survivors, and they're coming for you. And that, for me, is the sickening power of watching Jaws, is making the decision, allowing yourself to be eaten by it. Yes. Jaws is a film to just sit back and watch and just let it consume you. That, I think, will uh, wrap us up for Jaws. Such fun talking about this movie with you, Travis. Thank you so much for for coming on and for going through it with me. Tell the fine people listening at home where they can find your stuff. Yeah, thank you so much again, Emmett. It was a real honor to be here. You can find me on Twitter at Sir underscore Travis. Um, I'm not uh, currently on uh, Planetos Podcast. I'll be back when we get closer to House of the Dragon, but check that out at Planetos Podcast. And then I'm excited to announce that probably in June, maybe July, I'm going to launch a new uh, monthly podcast called Nothing But MacGuffins. Uh, thank you, Emmett, for suggesting that title. <laughs> um, that that uh, that podcast will focus on the art of uh, MacGuffins, which is a plot device used primarily by Hitchcock, also used by Lucas. Um, basically, you know, you think of the Maltese Falcon, the Lost Ark, all of these different things and how they're used in the film. And so I think it'll be an interesting way to explore the film. And actually, not a cast listeners will will uh, recognize who's going to be my uh, first special guest. We're going to talk about Rangers of the Lost Ark, another Spielberg film. I'll, I'll I'll hold on who that special guest is going to be until we get it recorded and everything. But everyone will will love that uh, guest and and what he has to say about Rangers of the Lost Ark and Steven Spielberg and the Lost Ark MacGuffin. You can find that uh, you can find that on Twitter at movie MacGuffins. I'll uh, I'll t- be tweeting that out in the coming few days. Absolutely. I can't wait for that. Yeah. Hearing you two talk about Raiders is, is going to be a special delight. going to be a perfect uh, follow-up to this one. So uh, uh, thanks, folks, for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Our patrons get early access to our episodes as well as special episodes and other benefits. You can check us out on Twitter at Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much for listening, folks. We will see you next week.